0: In life with the top town, we're storming the big town. Storm is right, should it be snowing? Moving right along. Ba-dum, ba-dum. We'll make it, you'll know best. Blake, we're back, and we <laughs> successfully
1: made it out of the the crazy like 2019 month. 2019 horror movie extravaganza. October Halloween extravaganza. That,
0: that, that it was, um, it was quite an insane month this month. It was. Of uh, this month, this year of 2019, 2000. I, I'm, I'm so... <laughs> I'm just, you guys are going to have to bear with us yeah, tonight. Yeah, we're, we're, we're tired and I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to fill up my beer here. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, it was quite a, uh, a long haul. Uh, for for coming off yeah. the summer
1: of sequels, yeah, I mean, th- how many stories do you think we covered? Uh, let's, let's say there was—I f- don't remember—but let's say there was five in Trick or Treat, in Trick or Treat,
0: and there's Jesus <laughs> in, 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 in <laughs> ten, and what else the crypt Vault of Horror, and then we another did five Creep Show was another five. And then the last well, so one 20, was... 20, and then uh,
1: 23. What was the last movie we did? Tales from the Dark Side. Uh,
0: yes, so that was three, with the wraparound. So so we're going to say a baker's dozen. <laughs> 25, 25 to 26. Is that what a baker's dozen is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 Got to start going to that baker. Yeah, jeez, hey, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> sure this is only 12 in here? Fine, don't worry. <laughs> Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Dion. And I'm Jay Blake. No relation. We just threw everybody off there. I'm Jay Blake. And I'm Dion, just so you know. Um, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was a pretty strenuous, um, hardcore... It was a marathon for you us. Know, so and I, I, <laughs> I, for me, it's been a marathon <laughs> since April, or whenever we did this, the, the summer of sequels, because we were reading novelizations, and we've been trying to keep keep abreast of everything um and we were needing to look at breasts then and then we were also having to stay ahead of stuff by reading all the stuff and be prepped yes. so it was um It's been a It's, it's,
1: been, been, a h- ro- <laughs> it's been a
0: long road hard <laughs>
1: road it's been a long <laughs> road 2019's been a rough one
0: Yeah it's been a, it's been a very long um long year for us A
1: long and winding road
0: But we're here to tell you my our friends that very Fairies wear boots, and you got to believe us. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, I tell you no lies.
1: Um, We're doing a movie today that's so near and dear to Dion's heart that I w- know. I wager to say that this might be one of the most Dion beloved movies that we've done so far on the show. Um, you might be right. You might be a rabbit. <laughs> you, you might rabbit. You <laughs>
0: might. Would this be one of Dion's <laughs> favorite movies of it all might time? Yeah, you know, it might
1: be a rabbit.
0: It might. Um, let's cut back to uh, a week and a half ago of this recording. I'm sitting in bed right before um, Halloween, the Sunday before Halloween, and I'm watching my cozy TV, reading all my info, prepping for this stuff, and they have on Cozy, they have a marathon of the Munsters. And full disclosure, I never really was a Monsters guy growing the, up.
1: Never did the Monsters.
0: Never had anything against them, but you know, well, that's bah- one of the best. Yeah, you know. I mean, that's one <laughs> of them. Then it's a damn. I mean, what an awesome freaking uh, score that is. I mean, <laughs> it some is, of, it's it's funky. It's funky. Then when you get like the Ventures, yeah, you could you could smell that stuff when the Ventures is doing it. But it's got an awesome it's got an awesome theme. And, uh, you know, what always just just scare me is because, you know, they would come out from the, you know, the stairs would open and he'd come out from the basement and there was a monster down there. So, I was like, you know, I ain't gonna fuck with that. That's too scary. Spot. Yeah. So... They were doing a marathon all day. And I said, you know what? I'm going to leave this on in the background because it's nice. I can watch it. I, I already watched Car 54, Where Are You with um, Al Lewis and uh, who's in, uh, with Fred Gwynn, uh, who is both. Um, uh, Car
1: 54, where are you? <laughs> There's
0: a hold up in the Bronx. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Be here all night. Yes. yes uh. <laughs> Car 54, where are you? Uh, what I say, one of the most underrated shows of all time. But anyway, so I'm watching The Munsters. And, um, on the Munsters is a, um, you know, it, it's got the regular cast and you have, um, the one-off Marilyn, right? She's played by a, uh, a, a woman oh, she gets changed. At That's right. Yeah. Her name's Beverly Owen. And, uh, I'm looking on the, uh, I forgot why it was brought to my attention, but I was like, Hey, you know, I, I remembered there being a story. So I went up and looked at it, and it was the actress Beverly Owen was in the first 12 episodes, and then she's replaced, like you said, by a woman named Pat Priest who finished out the series. And then when the series ended, they made, like, a TV movie, which was color, and then they replaced her ass because they're like, we want someone younger, and they put someone in just for the TV movie. So I wanted to see, oh, I wonder why Beverly Owen was replaced. And come to find out is Beverly Owen was an actress. She tried out for the monsters thinking it wouldn't get anywhere, and it became this, this far-reaching hit and she's stuck on the West Coast doing the Munsters with the commitment to the show. And her bro, Bo, is <laughs> on the east side. Maybe her bro also. Her but bro, yeah. more importantly, her, her beau. beau. Her beau sh- is, is stuck uh, in New York City. And she's madly in love with him. And she wants him to marry. And, and she's so sad she's out there and she starts telling them she like you know she she can't work like this and she wants to get out of her contract and like you can't get out of your contract you got to hit series so she makes herself she makes it known that she's so unhappy at the place she starts uh you know uh, missing lines she's throwing up she's bursting into tears when they're doing takes it finally gets to the point where freaking al lewis and fred Gwynn are like yeah. get this poor girl out of her contract so she can go home and marry her husband or her, her, her bow. So they finally said, okay. They let her out. She travels home, and she marries a guy named John Stone, who was a writer-producer for The Muppets, Sesame Street, and who has a big part in tonight's uh, thing we're doing tonight. Um, I
1: was going to say, who's this asshole that wouldn't move to the West Coast for? It was – it was, it, it was uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. It was a guy named John Stone, who was the writer-director-producer of The Muppets, and uh, they marry in 64, and they only – uh, spend ten years together, and then they get divorced in '74. But she ends up never doing any TV work again. Uh, so he didn't
1: even throw her on Sesame Street. She she was on
0: Sesame Street for 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 uh, for I think she did some cameos, but no, she just be, she was pregnant. And she had you know she had a couple kids or maybe a kid. I get foggy there. But point is, it was connected tonight to tonight's episode, and I didn't even realize. And I was like, holy shit, this roundabout. You know, uh, Beverly Og. I think her name was Ogg and uh they gave her this sta- they figured out a new stage name which was owens and she ends up being on a show but then you know then when i'm when you read about it from the muppets point of view it was because she was trying to you know i felt bad because she was trying to use slippery ways to get out of the contract and this is all at this point it's all very uh just you know uh urban legends of what to believe on the internet but you know people were saying like you know uh try doing this or try doing that to get out of the contract and you know if you look at it from the the studio's point of view it's like hey you signed this contract you tried out for this role it's not our fault that you want to get out of this now so you know you don't know really who to believe and who you should have sympathy for should you have sympathy for her or should you have sympathy for the for the studio but lo and behold like i said uh it, it goes back to tonight and her marrying this guy john stone um now this like you said uh ends up having a a uh, a huge huge impact on my life uh did we say what we're doing tonight
2: <laughs> we haven't we
0: even got we haven't even got to what we're what we're up to tonight um we are doing we've realized now it is the fortieth anniversary of jim henson's uh nineteen seventy nine movie the Muppet movie
1: as well as it's as of
0: this post dropping uh November I think it is the tenth it's the fiftieth anniversary of the Sesame Street's uh, starting on 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 public television, so we figured, hey, you know what? Maybe we can't make this Muppet Movie podcast that long or long enough. <laughs> we'll throw in a little Sesame Street, and we'll, we'll, we'll you know we'll talk about a little bit of the journey of 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 Sesame Street getting to air. That kind of encompasses Jim Henson's journey. But then Blake made a fair point up before we started recording: is that we don't really want to trudge over what we've already done on. Emmett Otter, which we did yeah. about a year ago.
1: But we also talked about Henson on Labyrinth.
0: On Labyrinth as well. So we're going to try to to thread the needle ever so slightly and le- give you a little lead up on, I guess, like children's programming leading up to Sesame Street and then the weird, crazy kind of story that Sesame Street got. Uh, Cliff Notes version, of course, because we, we don't have all night. And then how <laughs> that led to... Like we usually <laughs> like do. We, we usually do. <laughs> get this thing done in one half hour um uh,
1: <laughs> my brother has, my brother listens to the show sometimes yeah <laughs> he's <laughs> and uh he was like i'm gonna listen to your uh evil dead 2 and i don't know somehow we, th- we started talking about the show via text and uh and i was like yeah i no, people i was like you know i was like our spaghetti western episode our for a few dollars more episode is really interesting and um and I was like, you know, in our Superman episode's really interesting too. If you're into comic books and stuff, he's yeah. Like, he's like, I saw that three plus hour running time, and I have to admit, I got scared. <laughs> well, you know, w- and we we've, we've brought this up quite a bit, haven't we? That a lot of people who
0: are newbies to the to the that's a real <laughs> uh, turnoffer if that's the right nomenclature, because people see that the, um, you know, God Almighty, what are you what are you talking about for fucking three and a half hours? Like, well, you'd be surprised. We get into. <laughs> Um, but I guess that's a very good point to try to keep this on task tonight. Uh, for me, this is probably, I guess, the single movie that got me on my way to being what—I don't know—maybe even to meet you tonight, Blake. You know, because of it, it's the movie that w- made me want to make movies, made me want to get into um, film, made me want to have the standard rich and famous contract, as Orson Welles says at the end. And uh, it's one of those things where. Uh, back when I was growing up uh in New Haven, even before I can remember, I had the Muppet movie soundtrack uh on l p vinyl and uh you know i when i f- had my first memories, it was already all beat up and crayoned all over and stuff and uh I had worn out the video i i 'd seen it so many darn times and it got to the point where um uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, in this movie, they make cameos and Maybe this is the reason because of this movie, but then before I can remember, I had as well a Charlie McCarthy. I don't know if I've ever shown that to you. I have a a life size, well, not life size, but a six Six, six foot (laughs) tall. it's, It's huge. I have a full size Charlie McCarthy marionette that. I guess all all my life we've kept in the attic because you don't know really what to do with the thing. But as a child, I would play with the thing and I would sit on it and try to. It was it's a functioning it in <laughs> the cage <in> the <laughs> exactly. because <laughs> it, it would come alive sometimes <laughs> and kill my friends and drag them because it was hungry. It would drag me up. But I had this. I had I have it in the original box. It has a top hat. It has a monocle. And um, uh, ever since I was little, I had the thing. And it was a little freaky, but you know I try to like you know do puppet exercises with it and all that and then um
1: we had one called willy talk
0: oh you did yeah okay so i wasn't the only one that had this you know so i think there was a resurgence because i looked it up recently and i guess in the 60s and 70s they had reissues of this so i have like the 70s reissue of charlie mccarthy so it was that is the version i have yeah and it's like you know it's like his top hat's like felt you know and it's um and
1: we should mention that that's the father of uh candace bergen Aka Murphy Brown,
0: <laughs> yeah, and she um, she had a quite a well-to-do kind of childhood because you know her dad was you know rich as balls growing up, so she had like the fairy tale princess birthdays and stuff, and she r- was really like in the lap of luxury growing up, you know, um, having that fairy tale kind of an upbringing because her father was uh, Edgar Bergen, who was really the father of of this kind of. You know, really, I guess, ed- edging out for how we know of of ventriloquism. Of, yeah, and the and the rudimentary aspects of uh, marionettes and all that. So I had this thing growing up, and I would play with it. And then on a Saturday night, they would air the Muppet Show, and I was a huge Muppet Show fan. And I also had Kermit in the. My parents got me the Kermit. Uh, doll that was i don't know probably about like 15 inches big and it was him in the trench coat with the hat like the investigative reporter mm-hmm. and i also had a uh, scooter uh him like with the, the the big old plastic sneakers that you can kill somebody with like <laughs> yeah. it was like one of those so i had since i had the two of them and that i had my little bear that i named floyd that i've had all my life i had him be s- pseudo fozzy so on a saturday night when i was watching reruns of the muppet show in my parents room because that's where the second tv was the black and white uh, I would sit up there on their bed and I would play my own Muppet show as I watched the Muppet show. So I would watch TJ Hooker was on on a Saturday night. I watched myself some TJ Hooker and then either before or after I'd watch the Muppet show and rerun and, and I would play myself the Muppet show. And and then I would go listen to the Paul Williams soundtrack and play out myself out of the, 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 the Muppet movie soundtrack. So um, this is probably, I guess, aside from a movie like the black hole or something, this is like the most integral part for me of watching and, and understanding and then the idea of how meta the movie is and all that kind of a thing and the jokes and all that about the aspect. It, I guess it was one of the first movies to really make me aware of behind the scenes and, you know, making movies and the fourth wall and and it could be possible to go have a career in this kind of a field. So I think from a very young age looking at Kermit the Frog, it was like, oh, you know, I want to do that, you know? Yeah. And I think I could positively guide myself back to, the Muppet Movie and being the movie that kind of you know started a lot for me, and that's why I've always had a huge affinity for Jim Henson Muppets and the Jim Henson's world of Muppets up until when he passed away in 1990. Yeah. Good night, everybody. <laughs>
1: um, the history of Dion.
0: Yes. and the Muppets, <laughs> Part One, Dion. So, um, how about you? I mean, I know you're you you I'd you love the Muppets.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't dislike the Muppets. Yeah. I just don't have the kind of nostalgia that you have for them. Sure. Honestly, I probably didn't see the Muppet movie in its entirety until I was an adult. Yeah. I I, re- I think I remember going to see Muppets Take Manhattan at the movies. I
0: saw the, the Muppets Take Manhattan at the And I want
1: to say that I saw The Great Muppet Caper also in the movies, but I would have
0: been pretty little. 82? It's not as young as you were when you saw Superman. <laughs>
1: It's true. But you know. I don't remember seeing Superman. I'm told I saw Superman. Yeah. I kind of remember seeing The Great Muppet Caper. And full in disclosure, I, I, it's been so long since I've seen The Muppet Caper.
0: That one kind of fell in between the cracks between The Muppet Movie and Manhattan for me that I, I don't remember it as well as certainly. Yeah. And then the, Take Manhattan, I haven't seen it for probably 35 years. Yeah. Uh, how about the other one? I mean, have you seen Afterward? Have you seen any of those? No. I yeah. saw the
1: one with, uh, m- with Muppets in Space, or what's the yeah. one with Gonzo? That's Muppets in Space I from like
0: 1999. I saw that one.
1: But that's prob- but I haven't seen any of the other ones.
0: Yeah, uh, A Christmas Carol is good, which is post. That's the first one they do post Jim Henson's death. That's with Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge. They do Muppet's Treasure Island, which I was working at a toy store at the time in high school. So it was in heavy rotation. It's got Tim Curry in it. And that one I like. I think it's got some really good songs, and it's fun. Uh, but for me, and I think we've made this clear on other casts, where it's like, you know, um, I wasn't always head over heels for me as much after he died.
1: Well, to me, I can't watch it because Kermit's not Kermit. Yeah, it, is. it to me. Yeah, you it's g- like they've recast Kermit. With, yeah, uh, well, I mean they
0: had to. I mean yeah, cause he died. I, mean, <laughs> I you know, know, but you know, it's like
1: it's like when they changed. Steve
0: Whitmore doing the voice of Kermit. When
1: yeah, they changed the Darrens.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean even for me, it's t- it's the same thing for me with um uh when Mel Blanc got into that car accident like uh right around 1960 or so, and he he kind of damaged his throat. Um, he has a different sound in the '60s and '70s. How he's yeah. voicing, um, certainly, uh, uh, what's his name, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. I mean, it's also his age. He's getting into his '60s sure. and '70s. But you know, when you look at the difference, it's kind of I, I prefer the older, pre-1960, you know, uh, Looney Tunes stuff. Yeah,
1: you know, and the Muppet show. I you know, I had seen it, but it wasn't on a lot. You know, as I've said on the show before, like, I lived with my mom, and my mom didn't have a VCR or cable. And I would see my dad on weekends, so sometimes I would maybe catch it, if I was lucky, on there. But I don't remember it being on regularly on not cable television in Philadelphia, and it definitely wasn't on in Albany. Yeah. And uh, and so we didn't have a VCR, so I didn't rent the Muppet movie, you know? Yeah. And when I visited my dad, like, we didn't rent kids' movies yeah you You watch a rocky we rent like wall street yeah (laughs) or rambo (laughs) you know like highlander like we rented whatever my dad wanted to watch yeah and on occasion he would get me something and it would be like uh the spider-man 70s like tv show pilot i remember renting that and watching that at like five o'clock in the morning but for the most part he didn't I mean
0: like he rented it for you and then at 5 in the morning you were like I'm getting up and putting that in now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I
1: would get up really early when I
0: yeah. was a kid. I so. would, you know, that's funny cuz I remember that too. And I think about now how bad it must have been for my parents that, like, you know, on a Saturday morning, I was up at, like, 530. And that's ki- kind of goes into the backstory of Sesame Street. But I'd be up super early, and i go, like, they'd be sleeping, and I'd be like, hey, I know. hey. And they're like, well, like, can I go down? And then they, they would make me wait till I forget what time. And I'd be like, hey. And they're like, no, wait. And then, at like, 6 a.m., okay, you can go down. And then I'd go down myself. And, you know, and I think this is probably for kids our age, Um the common story. You go down by yourself with your siblings or by yourself yeah. and you'd, you sit yourself in front of the TV and then you'd turn the TV on, you'd let it warm up. And I remember I'd go up into the closet in the TV room and it had construction paper and I'd be able to draw and I'd, you know, cut out shit and watch the Berenstain Bears or whatever the heck was on. And, yeah, yeah. you know, remember, don't sit too close to the TV, the tube, you're going to lose your eyesight and all that. And it's just so weird. Then at some point my parents would get up, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know what time that would be. I couldn't figure it being too late. My parents weren't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, my parents have always been early, early risers. So I think that I was, you know, getting up on my own and going I know,
1: it's down. Still it. dark out.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like that's kids can't sleep, you know, because I mean, they, and also they're putting you to bed at like <laughs> seven eight o'clock, <laughs> so you think about eight hours, you know, you get a whole, you know, you're uh, five o'clock, you're just sitting there staring at the <laughs> ceiling. So.
1: And then as far as like Sesame Street, like I'm sure I watched Sesame Street. I think we all watched Sesame Street, but for me, it was like I watched Sesame Street when there was nothing else on. Yeah, yeah. Like I certainly wasn't looking for Sesame yeah. Street. I think my brother was more into Sesame Street when he was little. Yeah. Because we had, like, Sesame Street stuff. We had The Record, and uh, we (laughs) had uh, Bert and Ernie puppets, except for they were, like, hard plastic. Yeah. Like you were saying with the shoes on Scooter. Like, you could kill somebody. Yeah. You could, like, whip around. The hands were, like, hard plastic, and the head was so hard plastic that to, like, make it move, especially as a little kid, you had to, like... Put all your might. Into it, w- it was the um. It's <laughs> like oh, close the mouth. Was a
0: Cabbage Patch Kids hard plastic? I did because I remember Kermit's eyes <laughs> on. It, it was felt and but and then his the two eyes were really hard plastic. You know, yeah, you can yeah. kill somebody with that. Um,
1: for me, yeah, when and I get my, a, and my version of Floyd was that my your your teddy bear is that my mom. I guess for Valentine's Day of my second birthday, gave me a bird. Oh okay, uh, like stuffed animal. Yeah, and so I had that. I still have my mom has it now, but I had that like your mom's life. house. Shut and up, I, you know. And that's left in my bed and forever.
0: Well, I named Floyd after Floyd in in Doctor Teeth's band, Floyd. And I think probably the reason why I'm um, you know I love the the church organ and all that is all Doctor Teeth. Like listen to that awesome ass soundtrack. Um, I remember then getting home from school. Uh, in kindergarten and first grade and then you know getting home early enough to have on nickelodeon there was a show called pinwheel on yeah it was today's special on and then i would switch over and i'd either watch gi joe or transformers whatever was on during the day and then i would also watch near the end of the afternoon you'd catch uh mr rogers and then sesame street would be on you know so i'd see it on that end watching sesame street you know and it's so weird because prior to this recording i sent a. Bunch of shit load of links over to Blake yeah. To try to see if anything would
1: And work. I thought it was interesting because you didn't send me anything With the Muppets
0: No it's all It's, it's all like, like the cartoons and the documentaries Yeah well because he was doing uh, Jim Henson was doing all those short films Or animations and stuff um, But it's insane that I, I was going through YouTube looking at all This stuff and it was all like you know, out of all, those are all the ones I actually had tangible memories from. I remember this and I remember that, like I sent Blake the one where you go to the crayon factory and see how crayons are made or you see them getting one of those 55-gallon drums and I remember that when they're making the steel drum or... uh the, the, the crazy animations of the kid who's lost and he's got to backtrack his way or the the iconic one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve and there's you know there's a whole bunch of different ones or the stop motion with the flea circus or the the little cup on the on the uh on the kitchen cabinet and it's singing yeah. songs um and as for records yeah i had the sesame Later I found out in life when I was downloading these, there's evidently a whole, there's like Disco Sesame Street. There's all kinds of, my name is um, Roosevelt, uh, what's his name, the, 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 the puppet. But there's all these different, I didn't know that there was all kinds of different LP editions of Sesame Street. But I had the Sesame Street sing-along. And I can still sing to you like, let's take a ride in an automobile, let's take a ride in the car, listen to the engine go vroom 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 as we travel near and far. Come on, like Room Boom <laughs> Boom 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 yeah. Boom Boom Sorry, sorry. You've had complaints about D <laughs> like, singing exactly. on the show. <laughs> but I mean yeah, it's so like I know every track back and front and it was another one of those things where it's been like it was twenty years and I was like, I wonder if I could find that. And then I found it, downloaded it, and when I listened to it, I'm like, Oh my god, it's it's just opening these it's like those those Little vignettes, the animations and stuff—it's just yeah. so crazy. You haven't thought about this thing in thirty-five, forty years, and then it's just a light goes on—you like, holy crap! I haven't thought, but it's—but you have the tangible
1: memory. Yeah, I didn't um, remember all the stuff you said. There was definitely things I was like, oh yeah. I mean, of know, course, the one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, nine, ten, eleven—everybody remembers that. Cause that was like every episode. <laughs> yeah, you know that. Yeah, they're, they're but really, like the 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 kid who was the detective.
0: Yeah, I remember the it was. It was I was like,
1: oh yeah, I remember that. It was and like I a black
0: kid with a sister, and it was, and then I guess they would have uh, that would be the opening, and then there'd be an episode like a ten minute like. Yeah, little, I was
1: like, oh yeah, I, didn't, I didn't yeah. remember that, and I remember the the guy in the cup, the little <laughs> animated guy in the yeah. class. So there was definitely stuff that was like, Oh well, yeah. It was like
0: crocodile, like you know, seven, eight, nine, eight, four, four, you know, and it's all like very folkish like folk songs or like theme, yeah. but they're very all catchy and you know, and it was just all about getting kids to learn stuff and all that and it's just It's uh, funny
1: when I was watching the ones the the more the ones that were more like documentaries, like the crayon stuff. It reminded me that when I made my freshman film which was just like pigeons. Which was just like black and white footage of pigeons. Um, in New York City, but also Homie pigeons, set to like uh, piano music. And I remember Dave Hastings, the brother Hastings, was like, "I love your f- freshman film. It seems like it, it seems exactly like something that would be on Sesame Street." <laughs> it really was. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, well, that's like a huge compliment." You know. And when I was watching the the ones you sent, I, it reminded me that because I, I haven't thought about pigeons in f- twenty years, yeah, at least fifteen, years. yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. It is kind of
0: something that you would see on a a, a Sesame Street little vignette. I mean, even down to the the Crayola one where they go to the crayon factory, you got to think of how many times we or I watched that as a child to remember even the music. Yeah. Hearing the music, I was like, holy shit, and you know – it's, like, to me, it was, like, tangible. I was, like, watching it as a kid. I would, I would I maybe had a crayon in my hand. Yeah, yeah. So I knew the feel You're of the like, crayon. I got orange. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't make it orange. I got that fucking shit. But it's, like, you could feel, like, I was eating it. <laughs> but it's, like, you know, you you suddenly have these memories of the, ta- you know, it's, like, I have a tangible memory of, of, of what it smells and the taste, like, but what it feels like. And then, you know, when you see that video, them making it, all these people, it's, like, wow, it just goes so far back. It's amazing. Um... And then you know, just the the, the movie. And people have called it one of the you know the best road movies of all time. You know, it certainly does hit that that period of there was a bunch of road movies, of course, starting in the '60s and the '70s, or but maybe I think even further back. it's interesting that you know
1: we did last year. Yeah, it's 2018. We did Blues Brothers. Yeah, that comes out a year later. Yeah, after this and.
0: This has kind of shades of the. Blues And Brothers. I was gonna say, like, I you feel know? like it
1: was. I feel like it influenced the Blues Brothers. a little bit. I mean, can't <laughs> you see, like, I mean, like aside they show from up. Frank the, Oz they show up at it. the
0: church. Yep. Uh you know. And can't you see, like, the night Ralph's off? Can't you see, like, Murph and the Magic Tones playing that little? I kind of feel like <laughs> you know John mean?
1: Landis and Dan Aykroyd were ripping off the, the Muppet movie. <laughs> you know, and then they had <laughs> a Frank, little bit
0: Frank Oz cameos right at the beginning because he's at Juliet. Um, when remember when um yeah, when, and uh, there's a
1: rumor that. John Landis is one of the puppeteers at the end of the movie.
0: Yeah, supposedly in uh, he, John Landis says he was. And then Tim Burton tells John Landis a story where he was too. Tim Burton, I guess, had to be right out of college at that point.
1: Yeah, before uh, he started working for Disney. Because
0: at that last f- finale, when they have that pullback, you have there's got to be 250 puppets. I think they said yeah, they needed everybody on hands-on, so they're just getting anybody, yeah. you know. Um, so yeah, it, it, watching it certainly when when I was when you I seeing that the back and forth between Kermit and Ralph. Uh, in that in that situation of them playing, it, it's like oh, it's like almost like it's got, it had that boss note like boom, bah, dot. Yeah, You know, yeah. that that beat that that comes on. It's like and it's like you know only <laughs> Colombia, you know, whenever he's singing um, you know uh, from Blues Brothers. So I was like oh, this is it's so much kind of and you know it's the, the Muppet movie for me is very much my comedy, which is like I love that and it's I and it's subconsciously what I've gravitated to as I've gotten older. I've gravitated towards the uh, vaudeville era or the comedy duos you and I both have the same tastes where you know on any given day I could be a Kermit or you could be the Fozzie or I could be the Fozzie you could be the Kermit or yeah, you could yeah. be the Ralph I could be or Bert and Ernie vice versa you know we, we sometimes play the different role in our vaudeville routine yeah. or I'm the straight man or Blake's the straight man well, you know.
1: Dion's De- definitely more the Ernie.
0: <laughs> I'm definitely more the Bert. <laughs> Oh please! <laughs> um, definitely a little
1: more uptight than honest.
0: But I'm uptight with some stuff, and then you're like, "Why well, are you uptight?" And then that's the thing. you're like, "Well, I don't understand why you're uptight about that." And I'm like, "I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like seeing dudes <laughs> naked." <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so it's it's and then you know it's it's one of these things where there's so much such such subtlety in like the the and for the movie, the line deliveries, and just, you could tell a lot of it was, imp- well, at least if I get the feel that it's improv sure. so like a lot of the stuff between them and how they're saying stuff, it's just all it's all very funny, or all like, uh, you know, just the subtlety and stuff, and then the, then the other thing is the cameos. You go back to the Muppet Show, and I can remember watching when I was little, Mark Hamill being on, and this had to be in rerun, because I wasn't seeing the first run, because I wasn't born yet, but there's so many people I remember being on, and, it was a way that the the a kid was being introduced to these people. And then to see them up and moving, you think about this could be the reason why I know who Telly Savalas is. I know who all these freaking people, Bob Hope is and all that big, or Richard Pryor. Aside from Richard Pryor was more in our zeitgeist because he was in the toy and you know, all these Superman three. Yeah. But it's like, you know, these people are just showing up and you're like, you know, you know where now I feel like younger people they're going to have a, a leap unless you start the kid young the kid may just grow up knowing because you're showing like we did but um if you're showing a kid at 8 or 9 years old what it is you're going to have to tell oh this is you know i think that's some of that's kind of lost the cameos where they tried to do that recently with the the newer movies when i you know i haven't been as uh much of a, a a fan as as a lot of other people have been in these newer movies. I just fi- I find it a little too cynical, and, and I didn't watch the show that was on because it was very much kind of like a a modern update of them trying to put a TV show on in a network, I think it was, right? Yeah. It was, it was, almost, like, it was um, almost like The Office, or, kind of. And then mixed well, with the 30 Rock, right? Kind of a little Yeah, I guess it was more podge. like 30 Rock. But it was a little more, yeah, right, it was like but The they Office. Did have, they like did a, have, like,
1: talking head to the camera. Oh, and they it, did. It was, I think, to my recollection, I only watched the first couple episodes. I think, and it was a little it like wasn't a, on. Very it was a little long.
0: sassy, or maybe a little bit like a little. Yeah, it was more like like
1: a little t- trying to for that update, adult, in, you know, update for adults. It definitely wasn't a kid show. Yeah, but yeah. it wasn't like raunchy or anything.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because then the what I would first say is like, oh, how dare they? But then you look at the history of Henson. This is kind of what Henson wanted to do. Henson wanted to appeal to the masses. He didn't want to just have a kitty. And there was kind of a backlash for him when he did Sesame Street because he didn't want to. I,
1: I would also venture that more of the fans of the Muppets are the are the people our age and older. Yeah, I, than I, kids today. I certainly feel like you know what I mean because like we grew up with the Muppet you know, even if it was in a rerun with the Muppet Show and the. And Sesame I just Street. Fe- I just feel like it was playing to it was playing to us, the people that grew up with it. Yeah more than oh you mean the, the, the newest show yeah
0: it was playing for the it's like almost comic books nowadays they write it for kids people with kids they write <laughs> it for people our age because they know that the, their audience has grown up Yeah, that's a good point because even then you think about You know, I never had HBO growing up, but then Fraggle Rock was on, so Fraggle Rock was big for people who were good enough to have HBO. I remember (laughs) good (laughs) enough. Yeah, (laughs) I wasn't (laughs) good enough. (laughs) You were behaved enough. You know, (laughs) because I can remember those commercials of seeing like you know uh, 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 that they would play on Nickelodeon for the Fraggle Rock. You know, like and, and or
1: they'd have those toys at the McDonald's. Yeah, you know, Happy Meal. Uh, And I I can even
0: remember like, you know, like uh, the kid getting mad and, uh, you know, like, oh, I don't know what what the commercials, how they even go because I've seen them so much. So you think about a level of how many times have you seen the rerun of the commercial to know, you know, there's so many jingles I can still remember in my head from when I'm little, you know, because I've seen the commercial so darn much.
1: I just remember going to sometimes when I was at my dad's house on the weekends, we would go to my stepmother's mom's house, uh, her apartment to visit her and so i had nothing to do so i would just pl- i would just turn on the tv and i guess she had hbo because I, my only recollections of watching frenel rock was over there or over, was over at her house yeah and she always had non nonpareil candies What's it's that like mean? the cho- it's like the chocolate disks with the white oh yeah yeah little yeah beads yeah and so now like i have an affinity for the for nonpareil candies it brings you right back to because that cuz that apartment my stepmother's mom had had those candies on when I was little. It's like
0: smells, you know? I mean, I can remember, like, um, when I was very little, my wife, my wife, my sister and me shared a room until they kind of just converted a large walk-in closet they made it into my pseudo-little room. But I remember going in there, and then you know, there'd be like nightstands that we wouldn't use. It'd be my mom's just storing shit, and I'd open it up, and there'd be like, say, candles. Yeah. And I still to this day remember the smell of that candle, particular candle or whatever. So and it's just all these scents that stick with you to the point where, like, last year I opened one of my mom's like things in the dining room, and I smelled. It. I was like, oh my! God, it took you. I almost had like, I almost fainted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Suddenly, warm yes. <laughs> <I>, I'm leaping <laughs> into. Yeah, now if it's like 1982, I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> you know. Um, It's just you know, (laughs) and it's just it brings you back again. It's it's these weird Pavlovian (laughs) sensory. It's like it's like us you know looking at these little um, these little short because I don't even know if they play. I I don't watch. I mean, I watch children's programming now just because sometimes I find it comforting or I can put it on the background. Uh, but I don't watch Sesame Street, and I'm not up to date what happened recently because there was an HBO buyout or something, or they went away. I don't know what happened, but they still play Sesame Street on PBS uh, around the city and maybe around the nation. But I don't know if they're still. I think I feel like they've they've recorded all new kinds of stuff, and they're not really playing these original bumpers, you know, or yeah, these, I don't know. you know, these these these. They're um, also not formatted
1: for the new televisions, so. Maybe that also has something to do with the
0: the older stuff. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's for 4.3. Yeah, they'd have to put uh, co- uh, wings on each side of them yeah, as they call or them. Stretch it, in or stretch it. Yeah, and or then it punch looks bad on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although it would be cool to see all that, those especially the like the animations and stuff, like well, re, like you know, like remastered, cleaned well, up. Well, they put
0: out that. a uh, uh, for the I guess it'd be if this is, if we're talking this is the fiftieth for maybe the fortieth or the forty fifth anniversary. They put out like a double disc set. And it was like a documentary, in some of the original, I guess, segments of episodes, maybe the first, you know, the, the first sh- scene of the first episode or whatever. Because I thought it was going to be the seasons. Because I don't know if they've ever released everything. I don't know if you can, you know, man. I, I, but I mean, maybe you can do it for a streaming cap- cap- capability. Yeah, maybe you could stream it. But, but yeah. for this disc, they they must have remastered some of the stuff. But that you was think like, that... I mean, but at this point, it's Disney. Yeah, but
1: Because yeah. it's hard to say because or it didn't. It didn't when HBO. you sh- when you watch documentaries about it. Y- it's hard to d- determine whether, like Henson owns Sesame Street. He owns because like it's like it seems like the children's te- television workshop owns it. He retained. I mean, he might th- own the characters. Yeah. But he might not own the show. In
0: '69, when they got everything together, he he uh, he. Was very specific. He waived all p- his performance fees, but he wanted full rights to uh every Muppet characters, so that when they came to merchandising, they had to go through him to get all the merch-, merch merch merchandization and all that. And then it got to be a point when he was making the deal with Disney to buy, because it got to. I mean, this is for down the road, or and it's also I don't know what we should cover here because. Uh, I don't know when we'll ever come back to the Muppets again, but it's something like I don't know if we should go into post Muppet movie after that territory, but it's like Henson got to the point where he was, you know, this this he been he been. In the business for two decades before he even got to Sesame Street. Yeah. Then he got to Sesame Street. It was so lucrative. And then he did his other stuff by the 80s when he was doing creative stuff like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. He wanted to sit, sit back a little bit and be able to work more on the creative side and then hand the business off. It's kind of like what News Corp just did when they sold 20th Century to Disney. I think that's a 4951 kind of a merger where News Corp and Rupert Murdoch wanted to concentrate more on the news side as well as the internet because that's where they think the, f- the future is. And then on the other side of that, they can have Disney control the movie aspect because there were m- more yeah. well suited and have the day-to-day operations. But I hear
1: that now Disney's taking all that stuff and doing like the Disney archives. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're putting all the, put all the stuff movies. in the vault. Vo-
0: well, so this is the problem that, so it seems that when, when, uh, Henson was doing the, the, um, the, the deal with Eisner, Michael Eisner at the time, who was the person who was in the... um, It was our Walt Disney. (laughs) Yeah, he was our Walt Disney (laughs) in the 80s, who uh, it seemed like a very good deal, but then I guess he was having... Henson started to have second thoughts because of all the nitpicking and stuff where he wanted to retain... He he made sure that Sesame Street retained the rights to those characters and any kind of uh, posthumous demise, but then when Henson died so suddenly, I don't know if it was on paper and this is where like i said i don't want to get into the land of speculation of what happened there but there was uh almost a battle because disney wanted that that lucrative merchandising and all that and and um disney went under the hat of all the the muppets proper characters for for disney to oversee um but i don't know what happened specifically with the, the sesame street stuff
1: now have you ever been to sesame place no,
0: no, I, ha- I haven't. I've always wanted to, but then I kind of felt like I missed the cusp, and then I didn't know, if, I would, you know if, if you're 9, 10, or 11, if you're too old for it there. Have you? I did, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, dear. God, you <laughs> son <of a> bitch! <laughs> I knew it. I barely remember it. I was so little. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ!
0: Gee, that's an attention getter. Here, just hold your nose up; it'll stop the bleeding. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry, that was an eye, eye open <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I was. I'm, I'm awake now. <laughs> you were, you you moved with it. You, you, you. I was very lucky. Well, one, it was it was not too far outside of Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, because that was the thing for me is coming from Connecticut. Yeah. And it was a drive. But that's like I ain't driving that far. <laughs> I don't care who did it. <laughs> I don't care who did what. <laughs> it says to me, what? Yeah, you're going to West Haven in the movies. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, I was lucky that um, I had a cousin who was right around my age. He's like only four months older than me, or something. And since my mom was a single working mom, uh, occasionally my aunt, both my both my aunts, both my mom's sisters, re- really did, uh, you know, took care of me. But uh, if they were going to do something. Fun with my cousin Jimmy, and they and it was near Philadelphia because they lived in Jersey. They didn't live in Philadelphia. They would take me along, yeah. And so they, I guess they were taking Jimmy to Sesame Place, and uh, that's awesome. I want to say I think it was them. It's like going to Dolly. There's a chance it was my dad, but I think it was I think it was my aunt and my uncle took my cousin Jimmy. Well, oh, you have memories of it. You have like the flashes. Very, I remember there was an animatronic Oscar. Sweet. And I was a kid that loved, like, going into the ball pool. You know, like the pool oh yeah, yeah balls. the
0: the the ball yeah the ball little the, like the, <laughs> the ballroom. And they had I love it. playing with balls. <laughs> <laughs> and they
1: had they had one that was like all these green balls. There's maybe a picture of it, which might be why I kind of remember it. But uh, I feel like that was part uh, of their ad campaign
0: in the commercials. You'd see that ballroom, or whatever yeah. it was. <laughs>
1: And so I, I, for some reason, even if it was a lot of Chuck E. Cheese, like, I loved oh, I remember the ballroom diving Cheese. into the yeah.
0: balls. Think of how unsanitary that I is. I
1: love swimming around in balls. <laughs>
0: yeah, you love balls. Blake loves <laughs> being in those hot, all sweaty all balls. balls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember there was a, um, a supermarket in Connecticut, a one-off called Edwards on the Post Road in Orange. Now, with balls. <laughs> and it, But they had the ballroom. <laughs> so the idea was you'd
1: <laughs> come down to Edwards, swim in the balls.
0: Hairy balls, sweated balls. Uh, you'd go in there, and you could leave your kid at the front in the ballroom, and then you could, I guess, <laughs> go do <laughs> the thing.
1: Grab him by the, yeah. by the, by the, by the pants and the shirt. Throw <laughs> him, toss him into the ballroom. Ah. <laughs> and then it just, it's, you know, feet are just hanging out
0: your head down there. And I don't remember if they had a babysitter. I think I remember going in there once and then playing the entire time and then leaving. And then I think afterward, my mom wouldn't let me go. I'd be like, why can't I go? Because they had it unsupervised. But it was back in when they didn't think of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I <didn't care>. Supervised. What <laughs> the
1: fuck cares? Supervision.
0: Yeah. You, know, you know, and you think about now, like, there's kids peeing in the ball. I'm thinking of shit in the ball. Um, so I don't. Know. But I remember that ballroom.
1: Was so those are the only one. two things from Sesame Place I remember, which is the uh, the animatronic Oscar the Grouch.
0: And the ballroom. And the ball. And I like I said, I feel like. I uh, th- the closest I ever got to it was when we'd go on like trips we'd stop at the, the the uh, the rest stop on the highway and you get all the pamphlets and I grab <laughs> the Sesame Place pamphlet yeah, yeah. and I think it I, I yeah you would see Big Bird and then in the back it'd be like the ballroom I'm like that motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get you Big Bird <laughs> I'm gonna know some guy there. years from now <laughs> who's
1: gonna have been in there <laughs> 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 motherfucker
0: Big Bird um so. You know, to, I guess to 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 quickly get into Sesame Street. Yeah, let's take this baby way down the alley, Dion. To, um, we go back way way down the alley. We talked about Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Uh, and Charlie McCarthy. It, it's it's interesting because, uh, I didn't you know look up too much about Edgar Bergen, but I'm assuming as anyone would that he's of course from the vaudeville era, and then he got his start onto radio. And at the time, he was um doing radio he had his Charlie McCarthy doll and then he had the other doll which was the um, uh, what's his name Mortimer I think uh, Mortimer Sne- Snurd was the other puppet you or the I guess the what do you call that it's the marionette you don't really hear too much about and they were on radio so it's kind of funny I always thought that's it's interesting that if he's doing a radio gig does that mean he's sitting there actually having the, the, the marionette on his lap, or is he just sitting there doing all the voices? Like, he may, though. You, you know? never know
1: what his process was. Because you think about
0: it's like kids at home are listening to like, you know, it's Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and, and Charlie, Mc- I mean, there's movies with Charlie, Mc- you know, where, where they, they took the country by storm, but it's, it's funny when you're not looking at him and the puppet, or I guess at that point, the marionette, I guess it wasn't a marionette, it's a puppet. Um, dummy. It's, it's a dummy. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's a that's the proper word. Where it's like, does he need it, you know, or is the kid in his head just because if you're listening on the radio, he's doing all the voices, you know. It's like, oh, you know, there's a, you know, it's like, oh, there's, you know, is is it, the kid's thinking that he's there with Charlie McCarthy. It's just. It, it's for me it's something like oh that's it's so interesting that I he has a radio show in it,
1: honor of that we for the rest of the show shouldn't move our lips just talk <laughs> I've I've actually tried to do it like that I tried to do you it. sound like Kermit yeah. when you talk like that.
0: <laughs> I've got a range uh you know we're going to talk like Kermit for the rest of the show um I've tried from back when I was little, having the Charlie Bucket doll tries uh, right to, to move, you know. But then it's the one who's get who actually gets there. But then I'm always a stickler when you watch people. Even tonight, when watching the uh, Edgar Bergen in his last role because he died before the movie came out, I'm looking at his throat. and I'm like, it's moving. <laughs> <laughs> you know? This guy was famous for this. It's like, uh, you know. I can never, you never find, I never seen anybody who's able to just make it look like, I mean, there's the people who can drink water <laughs> and talk at the same time. There's all those tricks of, you know, and I've seen the, the, who I don't know their names now, but I've seen guys come to my day job with the puppets and the guys with the comedians and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's always just clenching their teeth like this and then they're talking right through it and their lips ain't moving, but they're, their their necks <laughs> moving like it's nobody's business. And you're like, what the, you know? It's <laughs> and then sometimes they're even like this where their lips are slightly moving, but they're just their teeth are together, and you're freak like, like well it's not very, you're not it's not that.
1: <laughs> you're not fooling me, guys. <laughs>
0: exactly. I don't know who you think you are. So even a little kid, you, th- I guess, because if you're brandishing a, a a puppet in its face, the kid's gonna look at the puppet. But um, you know, so you go back to, to 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 Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and they were kind of, I guess, the front runners really for radio and TV and movies. Doing the whole uh, puppet industry and 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 getting that out there, and then when Jim Henson's born in '36, Jim Henson grows up and he's and he he lived in Mississippi. He's from Leland, Mississippi, and his uh, thing was he had a friend growing up named Kermit Scott. And that's where they say sometimes, or maybe he got the name Kermit from. And they used to, I guess in the area of Mississippi, there used to be a lot of frog legs. The kids would go and eat. So that could be the affinity for him getting eaten frog legs. And, and, uh, you know, and that was where later on he's, he, he gets the idea of having Kermit as a, as a kid. There is a, um, a guy named Burr, Burr Tillis, Burr Tillstom. I think I hope I'm pronouncing that name. Right. And he had a, uh, a, a puppet show called, um, Kluka, Fran and Ollie. They were the first ones really to, uh, have the idea of having kind of a puppet show that was on TV where he was a guy that would be working a puppets and he had a woman with him. And the, it was an idea where the puppets would interact with the woman. They, that was the first kind of like the idea of the, having the interaction of a puppet talking to a woman. Cause they realized you kind of need to have somebody for the puppets to interact with on TV.
2: Yeah,
0: And, um, Getting into the fifties, you had, of course, this huge phenomenon of uh, Howdy Doody, and Howdy Doody. There was uh, Buffalo Bob Smith, who actually in real life hated kids, and he had this. Uh, he, had <laughs> <Perfect> this <job. laughs> exactly. he had this perfect job exactly, and he had this on his show. He had he had this little uh, puppet, uh, which was a marionette named Howdy Doody, and how, Howdy it's Doody.
1: Howdy Doody time. time,
0: and. Uh, it was such a it was the first mega children's hit show in the 50s howdy duty and it was so big they didn't realize that at some point there was a presidential they were talking about the presidential elections and it was whatever i think was the first democratic uh televised uh where the democrat at the time accepted the nomination and it was first uh, uh broadcast on television but howdy duty put out a presidential button bin and they said if you uh wrote in you can get Uh, in these six cities they'd be able to um, order a a button and they only had 10,000 buttons and at the time they only had uh, 60,000 TVs were carrying their show but they got 150,000 thousand replies from kids they realized that it was because kids were going over their friend's house and everybody was watching so they realized how they had (laughs)
1: brothers and sisters yeah or (laughs) like the
0: neighbors or whatever so they realized how big the show was and how duty became this cult phenomenon in the 50s uh, you know, he had this whole Western land, and there was all these different other people on the show. And then you had, of course, Captain Kangaroo, and he was like this thing which I never watched Captain Kangaroo growing up. Full disclosure, um, he was on Romper Room was on. I never was a Romper Room fan either, but Romper Room was the, one of the first shows I guess in the 60s where it was uh, around like a kindergarten kind of environment. And what they would do is I guess they would sell the Romper Room idea to regions, mm-hmm. and then you'd have your local hosts, so it would be a local kind of a show. Yeah. And, you know, wherever you lived, you'd know the hosts from that, that uh, market, I guess you could say.
1: They had a show like that in Philadelphia. It wasn't Romp Room. And it was on, I don't know when it started. It very well could have started way before I was born. But it was still on in the 80s. And I believe it was on, like, Sunday mornings, really early. And I don't remember what channel. But I remember the guy whose name was Noah. And he was, like, the captain of this ship. Yeah, I'm, ga- I'm gathering that it has to be about somewhat about Noah and the Ark but not really but you have like a captain's hat on yeah the captain's like a hat on and so it was kind of like Captain Kangaroo it was like a ca- to my recollection it seemed like kind of a Captain Kangaroo like rip off kind of yeah and uh, but the show but the opening of the show was all like him in Philadelphia so that's how I know it was you know, regional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> a regional like, thing. It was, it was like a local show, and I guess we forget that how like the, the
0: you know the regionalizations of there was a creature, there was like a local creature feature guy in your yeah, market yeah. or different kind of things, and how big you are, and I guess that goes also back to what is that Anchor Man, or how famous the Anchorman people were in that in that market or that area. So uh, Captain Kangaroo comes on. Uh, in real life, his name is Bob Keeshan. And that hit the market by storm, and he was huge, and he had a a very, very, very vast show that lasted, I think, until the 80s. But that premiered in the 50s, and it actually coincides on the same day ABC premieres the Mickey Mouse Club, uh, and that debuted uh, against Captain Kangaroo on CBS. And of course, the Mickey Mouse Club was a massive hit, as well as Captain Kangaroo was a massive hit, and even um, at the time, Captain Noah and his <laughs> magic arc.
1: Yeah, it was called Captain. Captain. Apparently, he looks like Benny Hill from the picture you're showing. <laughs> Captain Noah <laughs> and his magic and his magical arc. And it, in Philadelphia, it aired from 1967 to 1994. That's pretty freaking crazy. So that's that's. that's Anyways, that's, that's I- how I remember. It was my. He
0: looks very much like a. Uh, almost like a uh, what do you call that a um a bit a benny uh a benny hill kind of uh, with the he, yeah a little bit he's kind of got like a uh, like a uh, what do you call that like a, a bellhops kind of a uniform on yeah it, mixed with a captain well he's he's behind a captain's wheel so i guess he's he's really reinforcing well i mean i wonder if it's the captain kangaroo bit too um but the uh
1: to no, no, to <laughs> it's <out sorry>. <laughs> it's all right. I don't
0: really have a stride. I'm <laughs> bouncing all around here. So basically, um, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse Club comes on, and uh, the, there are these huge shows, and they realize there's this big market to be made. And then there's another show called Ding Dong School, with Mrs. Francis, and it was really the first. This Ding Dong School is really the first interactive children's show, and it took place in this little red schoolhouse with this woman. Her name was. Um, uh, Dr. Francis Horwich. She was a chairman of education in Chicago, a department of education at uh, Chicago Roosevelt College. She would be the first one to actually talk to the camera and be like, "What do you think about today, kids?" And she would act like she'd listen and she, you know, oh, and she'd reply back. But what, what was ending up to happening here is that they would take these sponsors, and all of a sudden, she, in particular, was. You know, saying, like, don't forget to tell your parents to go. And so they w- she was hitting the kids. And it, th- that's where you get the backlash, where the critics are like, you know, this is really kind of scandalous where you're having these these people, you know, really going after spo- sponsors by going to the kids. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of got a little dirty pool. People didn't really like that, you know. And it's like, what the hell is going on here? We'll just wait till the 80s and yeah, have exa- entire we, cartoon show. And this is, yeah. Half-hour long commercials for and, toys. And this is another thing with, 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 like, in the 70s with us, you see that coming, but – That's where the Muppet movie and the Muppet show is. It's kind of before you had those just infomercials of Saturday morning cartoons that were just complete commercials for, like we've talked about before for cartoons and stuff. Um, Jim Henson around this time, you know, he, um, like I said, he was born in in, um, um, Mississippi. His dad worked for the Department of uh, uh, Agriculture around uh, in his adolescence. They they moved the family to Maryland, uh, and he... um, answers an, an ad in a paper looking for teenage puppeteers. And he goes to a local TV station. He starts doing this show uh, that gets canceled after a couple of weeks, but um, he gets his foot in the door. And then during his college years, he comes back to that station and starts doing freelance puppetry work. And he ends up making a good career and making some good money. So much so when he's in college, he asks his future wife, Jane um, Nebel, uh, to be his assistant doing this part-time college kind of a job. And um, he ends up Henson ends up getting a degree in home economics, which uh, is a, this is kind of like an umbrella over costume design, interior design, advertising art. And he realized if he got the home ec degree, he didn't really have to take the math and science courses that like a fine arts degree had to do. Yeah. So him and uh, Jane, they end up. Um, he ends up getting this degree, and then he starts when he's in the maryland area he starts doing uh puppet stuff on the side for local markets and he starts this show called salmon friends and salmon friends uh since they're in the dc area gets a lot of attention quickly and they start going on the jack parr show they start going on um uh like uh, ed sullivan show and when he's out of college by like 1960 or so he's already making like a hundred they say he was worth like a hundred grand yeah. already because he's getting advertisers and that's where the really money for him for him is is doing these these uh commercials and doing ads for things yeah you i just
1: thought it was really interesting because he's al- he. if you read if you watch interviews with him he always s- kind of points out that know, like, his passion really wasn't puppetry. No. It's just that he wanted to be... He wanted to work in television. Yeah. And he saw it as an avenue, like, that he could have his own niche. Yeah. (laughs) His own little niche, and then he could kind of get into television that way. And it's really kind of, like, an amazing lesson, you know, in in terms of, um, you know, how you think about your goals and your dreams and stuff. And it's maybe... (laughs) <laughs> maybe we should rethink our all right <laughs> yeah, like maybe if we want to make a movie maybe we, <laughs> we should just maybe try just making a movie is it? maybe we need to get into puppets or something <laughs> well yeah like you said he wasn't married to the puppet
0: idea yeah he just he was using it to I get on he clearly him. had an aptitude for it yeah. but and he was doing he quickly realizes by looking up until that time I bring up these other shows especially like the um the uh the Howdy Duty show is that they were looking at the classical way of doing puppets were, it was a piece of wood with, you know, just rudimentary features yeah, I on it. Say Howdy Doody, but you know, it have been a marionette. Yeah. And it, the move, the, 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 and the mouth didn't really move that much or that well. And Henson really realizes that he takes the designs of the puppets and he starts using, like, socks or felt and, like, you know, uh, having puppets that way to, and expressing emotions through using yeah, his hands. because of the soft... Yeah, you can... And, and, and he also realizes quickly that... Uh, when you're using, say, like, the Punch and Judy kind of an idea or having, like, the Prometheums kind of a uh, uh, Prometheum arch. Prometheus. I can't, yeah, <laughs> Prometheus arch, the Prometheus arch <laughs> that you see in, in a theater, is that you don't really need that in TV. So his I- yeah. quick idea is you don't have to have that Prometheum arch and shoot from far back. You could have the camera
1: frame be your... Yeah. You could have your, You could... You could frame them like you would an actor.
0: Yeah, and and you and then his big idea is that you can just have and you, you have c- blocking. Yeah, you stuff. can have you can be below frame, hanging up there, and then you don't have to hide behind something like you usually have to hide behind like a uh, you know anything to to have there be a, a pseudo stage.
1: So he kind of revolutionaries. It's kind of crazy that nobody really th- thought. I mean, I guess. Oh, it was so it was so. Revolutionary I, mean, I guess to a certain time. extent, like Howdy Doody. You know, he wasn't so much behind like a like a like a stage or anything. He was. Interactive with the kids, but, but he still wouldn't. He still married yeah, it, he's still a marionette. still. But it's crazy how you know, like because uh, you know a lot of the early silent movies, the earliest silent movies are like that because they didn't really figure out how to film drama because we they were so used to having it on a stage. that They just like let's just film it that way. That's how we're used to seeing it. And it wasn't until something like you know the Great Train Robbery and then D.W. Griffith stuff where like they were like you know what we can move this we could move the camera yeah <laughs> like we could cut between two different things yeah you know we don't have to have it all play out in one scene like we can have parallel action two different locations uh, but it seems crazy that it, then it took you know another 50 years or whatever for Jim Henson to be like yeah why are we still doing puppets that way like why aren't we just doing it the way you know like we would shoot any
0: and he he also realizes that with the camera being so close you have to have a little more detail a little more be able to have a characterization like we said with the with the sock and it could be subtle yeah and then it's almost like acting for the camera as opposed to being on a on a stage and acting in a theater or something like that where you want to have something a little more nuanced so he figures this out and then his angle is that he starts going on these shows and and he's getting this attention and then he starts um, doing ads for local places doing commercials and he starts making crap loads of money. Wilkins Coffee's this thing he does where it's and and his things are just doing these. You, they never thought to inter, in, to interject comedy into these these commercials. Yeah.
1: So he starts making crap loads of and money. And a lot of them are like six seconds long. Yeah, and it's just quick. not even like thirty
0: seconds. <laughs> it's like it's like a bumper between going <laughs> to a break or something. Yeah. like that. So he goes away to Europe and he. Comes comes back at some point and he goes like you know for I think like an extended summer or something and while he's in Europe he gets a kind of a a a look at how puppets and marionettes in that world is seen outside the U.S. and that's when he comes back kind of rejuvenated and realizes that this is, you know, he's going to use the puppetry. He's going to use that to be, he can see that'll be the means to his end to making the goal of becoming rich and famous, you know, that way.
1: Unfortunately, I don't know the details of it. And had I even thought about it before this very second, I would have found out more about it. But apparently my great grandfather, so my dad's grandfather, Mm -hmm. Was like into puppetry in Italy or Sicily? Like he was, you know, I don't know if he was well known or whatever, but apparently he was very into puppetry back in the day. They doing like like uh, marionettes and, and stuff. And my second cousin, my dad's cousin, s- has the puppets. I guess. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I should have. You should have maybe sh- got into puppets and puppets. I, I, I should have looked into this. A little
0: I more. could be your Frank Oz to your Jim Henson here.
1: I d- I. D- What's interesting is that now that we – now that Jim Henson has become such a success, most people, when they think of puppets, they think of Muppets. Yeah. But there really are – and we talked a little bit about this in Labyrinth because when we did the Labyrinth show, we talked a little bit about how Jim Henson was in that movie exploring all different kinds of puppetry. Yeah. Um, but he did kind of find this – this thing by creating the, the the what he called what he named Muppets and so that's what most people think of because of the success of it, but there are all kinds of different puppets from shadow puppets to like these paper puppets and um, even uh, the stop motion, those are considered puppets. Yeah, uh, like you know, uh, so it's bit like it's a, it's a huge art form with all these different kinds of uh, puppets and puppetry, um, but he was such a success that the majority of people it's like. You know, it's almost like, you know, I say what's the, the the amazing thing is when you say Frankenstein to somebody, the first thing they think of is Boris Karloff.
0: Sure, his look at Frankenstein. Yeah, because
1: like that's so iconic. And so in a way when you think of a puppet, the first thing we think of is like Kermit or that kind of Jim Henson puppet. But it really there really is it's really a fascinating art. There's a mutual Dion have a and I have a mutual friend, um someone I'm very close to who uh went to school for puppetry and so uh, I've met his Jim Henson's wife and one of his daughters and uh, the guy who does Tully. Okay. Tully? Tully. Yeah. Um, who also, his name's Marty Robinson maybe, uh, but he also created the uh, plant for Photoshop oh, yeah, Shop of Horrors. Shop of yeah. And he has a, uh, he actually just did, I just saw he did a puppet, he uh, directed a puppet show. Very small. It's kind of their workshopping it around for Halloween. Uh, I just saw that a couple days ago, and it's it was very cool. But uh, he had he struck like an unprecedented deal where he made a deal with them. because I think he make he designed the puppet for the stage show. Yeah, and he struck a deal with the producers of the stage show that if anybody ever. Wants to put on the play, they have to use my design. They have to pay me and use my designs for
0: that particular f- puppet.
1: For the, for the plant puppet, and
0: to use. And it so in
1: there's w- it right now, right across the street from me, they're putting on Little Shop of Horrors, and I would imagine that the puppet, they're <laughs> the, the the plant they're using, is is Marty's puppet, and and that he's he's getting a paycheck from that. And it was like a groundbreaking deal for for puppet uh, people because nobody had ever thought to do that, especially for live performance.
0: Yeah, I think he put he did a. Uh, he he 's serendipitous with a lot of the uh quintessential uh puppets you know that that he he designed and did himself uh
1: yeah he's a really interesting guy, and his wife uh, has been writing for Sesame Street for decades, yeah
0: um, all connected to all this, this yeah story. yeah um i th- th- the the old original story that they used to attribute it to uh Henson and his wife is they got the name Muppet from marionette m and then puppet and they kind of married that together because they're doing a little of both but then in later years henson kind of um went away from that explanation saying well we never really use the marionette so yeah. we you know so rod
1: puppet yeah you know, with the hands for like kermit and stuff." and that right.
0: was another thing they were doing too where you look at like Um, marionettes were traditionally is that strings from top where they were using rods from the bottom to make arms move so they were doing like you're saying a lot of this ingenious stuff that really people weren't thinking about yet especially with the use of expressions and being like I mean you take Kermit Kermit basically is just fabric and you know to be able to express is just how you move your hand in there so to be able to get that realistic uh, expressions and feelings is just how he kind of you know curls his hand
1: I wonder how much later is like Lamb Chop. You remember Lamb Chop? Oh, yeah, of
0: course, with What's-Her-Face, that she ended up passing away. Yeah. Um, so as we're going here, um, Blake's going to look up Lamb Chop and figure out where we are with Lamb Chop. That,
1: um, no, You know, it's a history of puppetry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here she is on uh, Sherry Lewis, that's right. Yeah. Here she is on Sesame Street.
0: Yeah, like the 80s, and she the passed 80s. away in, uh, I think, uh, maybe 10 years or so ago.
1: Yeah, th- I don't think it was too long ago.
0: Yeah, because I remember when that happened and she was, you know. So in
1: 1957, the character, a female lamb, first appeared during Lewis's guest appearance on Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. 1956.
0: Well, Captain Kangaroo, you get a lot of people coming out of Captain Kangaroo that we'll talk about in a minute. But the guy, John Stone, who we started this cast out, the writer, he's a a guy from Captain Kangaroo. Another guy named Dave Dave Connell, uh, Sam Gibson, uh, people that were... um, from the Captain Kangaroo, but it's also they were also unhappy with Captain Kangaroo, because he was kind of a dick, too, where he'd have a little drinking and he'd be a little assy. He wasn't as bad as uh, we talked about here with Buffalo Bob, who actually was like quite hated kids and was quite mean and didn't like kids, which is kind of like a, um, almost like a cliche nowadays, you know, um, but Henson was doing all this stuff on his own, and and it's quite amazing that he's getting these lucrative deals, and he's doing this stuff, so um, around that time, he ends up hiring um, Jerry Jewell in 1961 because he wants to replace his then-wife Jane because Jane's becoming pregnant with her second baby so she can retire from the business and he, she can concentrate on just raising the family. because yeah, they end up having like five kids. Yeah, right? so they move from D.C. to New York, and when they get to New York, they get huge ad deals, and they're doing uh, deals for Winston-certified meats, Ivory Snow, uh glean toothpaste, Royal Cotton Cola, uh, Purina Dog Chow, which they invent Ralph the Dog from there. Yeah. So they get these lucrative deals and they're already and this is a thing where they don't like to talk about the business side of it, but they're making crap loads. They're they're printing I mean, money uh, in their basement he's at this like, point.
1: Yeah, well I mean he's if you're gonna go it's 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 really interesting because you know obviously when we did like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, we talked about, you know, how this guy who wanted to make, like, experimental documentaries ended up making... George Lucas. Yeah, the most successful franchise of all time and having the wherewithal to keep the rights to it and keep all the merchandising, like, this really shrewd businessman underneath, like, this artist. And, And Jim Henson's kind of the same way. Like, he's, you know, obviously he has a goal, he wants to be on television, so he has to have some kind of drive for either fame or success or why would you want to be on television? But, um... But it was almost like he, he was he,
0: using it as a mask. You know, but he, he
1: really is an artist. And, yeah. And 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 I don't throw the word genius around, but he was uh, a genius at, if not just the puppets, but just the like creating this. Yeah. The, the, the creating a, like a like a brand for for what he ended up doing, and then becoming so successful. Like you talked about when they did like the Muppet Show and the movies and stuff. You know that was. All that money was coming from like the merchandising, yeah He's oh. like yeah, so but like that's the business side of it is like like yeah, we sell a lot of shit, but that shit is what costs was what pays for
0: us to, yeah to, to, to make this stuff. and then when Sesame Street became so successful, that's when they were able to stop doing kind of the commercial they were they were happy to get out of that kind of world because, yeah. you know and then and, and focus solely on the business of doing all that kind of a thing um. When they end up, I we, was we just talking about that ding-dong school. Mrs. Francis, that runs for three years, and then that's replaced by a little show called The Price is Right. And that's when that gets in, in that time slot there, uh, for if anyone's ever heard of The Price is Right. <laughs> if everybody knows that show. Um, but, I mean, it's a weird time because even Walter Cromkite, he was doing his morning show on CBS. And at points in that, he'd have a lion puppet named Charlemagne that would come on, and he'd discuss the events of the day. With with this Charlemagne puppet, well, you know, look, there was so three,
1: there was three channels. There was no internet. Well, I mean, but it was. It was try- a way, you know. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they were trying t- to get to everybody, but it was popular,
0: which is uh, you know, it, it, which is really interesting. It was it was actually you know a, a way of being able to make it. So Henson moves the shop, you know, what they're doing on local TV up to New York. They get Jerry Joel Jewel to come up. He kind of replaces uh, his uh, Henson's wife Jane, and they start doing. Um, you know, they start getting all these different lucrative things, and they start getting all these these, you know, doing these really, really, really high end um, commercials and all this. And and Wilkinson, like I said, is one of the one of the biggest names at that time too. That's doing stuff. So I mean, uh, at one point they have like I think it's three hundred ads. You know, they're taking this huge different kind of approach. And using comedy the slapstick because they grew up when he meets Frank Oz and he takes Frank Oz aboard. They're basically using the, the golden age of radio that we like stuff like Jack Benny Burns and Allen. You see a lot of that, you know, Abbott and Costello or Martin and Lewis. You kind of start seeing that kind of, uh, sentiment in comedy, the vaudevillian kind of gags in the comedy that they're doing. And they kind of like that little, it's almost like dark humor that they're using, you know? Yeah. Um, And they're able to, uh, you know, successfully transition and do something that people have never really seen before, uh, which is really interesting. And then, especially being able to be so marketable. And then they're also, you know, they're getting this really huge press by going on, like, uh, you know, Jack Parr or or, uh, the Ed Sullivan show. So the kids are enjoying them, but at the same time, advertisers are taking notice and then they're they're getting these big contracts and they're getting these commercials that are playing that are just making them you know fuck loads of money at the time they get a reoccurring gig on the jimmy dean show and we know jimmy dean now is the guy who makes the breakfast sausages yeah you know but he had it he was a country singer that had a show for a while he's also in diamonds are forever he is in diamonds forever yeah exactly um and not to be confused with James Dean. When I was little, I was like, Is James Dean, Jimmy Dean the same <laughs> people <laughs> he making
1: sausage Yeah, I,
0: geez, Jimmy's <laughs> Jimmy's doing everything. Um, and um, uh, Henson got a got a, a break on there, bringing uh Ralph a little more of a uh, of a of a uh a cultivated version of Ralph the dog playing the piano on that show. And Jimmy Dean loved it so much that uh you know he'd put him on a reoccurring thing. And then so when when uh, Henson really got his production company underway, he offered to give Jimmy Dean 40% of, of a stake in it, and Jimmy Dean declined, saying, no, you deserve every cent of that, you yeah. know, because you're going to go somewhere in this, you know, you're going to go someplace, kid, in this... I got my sauce. <laughs> <laughs> <fallback. laughs> Don't worry about anything. <laughs> you know, I've got a very lucrative thing up here that I'm thinking about. I'm just trying to cultivate a, you know, a kind of a, um, an idea. At the same time around this time, uh, he also writes a... Jim, Jim Henson writes a script with uh, Jerry Jewell, which doesn't really get made, called Sands, Tales of Sand, which in 2012 they adapted into a graphic novel called Jim Henson's Tales of Sand, which I read in 2012, but I don't remember too much of it now because I was drunk at the time. But he did a very uh, nine-minute experimental film called Time Piece, which won an Academy Award for the best live-action short in 1966. So, like, in the zeitgeist or yeah, in the world... Have,
1: which isn't really a puppet.
0: Thing. No, it's not. It's just it's, it's it's kind of like an avant-garde experimental film. Uh you know, in the, but in the world of puppetry he was really really well known and people, you know, really knew who he was and that kind of a thing. So around this time there's this story where one morning um you have a couple in 1965, Lloyd and Mary uh Marisset and they have their daughter wakes up in the morning on a Saturday in the morning like we were just saying. She wants to get up and go watch TV. She doesn't wake her parents up. She goes down and she turns on the television, and I think it's like five thirty in the morning. And Skidamax. <laughs> she she sees breasts, <laughs> and she she finds out her career life is, is completely different than what she wants to take. No, but the it's five thirty in the morning. She turns on, and the channel hasn't started yet. Six o'clock, the channel comes on the air. So she's just seeing the, the color bars with the Indian there. You know, in the old days, you'd have the like the 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 outline of an Indian Native American on the thing, and she's and you have the high pitched the you know you have the, the color bar yeah. sound and the tone and there's this tone squeeching through the house and she's sitting there staring at the television waiting for it to turn six o'clock so the programming would start so the the father lloyd gets up and he walks down the stairs and he's also in a um he's a uh experimental psychiatrist but he's also the vice chair of carnegie the carnegie corporation which is of course n- after uh Andrew Carnegie, the famous uh, architect who gave us Carnegie Hall and all these different buildings in the world, he set up this trust fund or this fund for, to help this endowment. Uh, the, the, the father goes downstairs and he looks and he's like, this is, he's like, this is crazy that my daughter's up this morning and she's looking at color bars and listening to Test Tone and she's so captivated. So people started to realize that, like, especially in the 60s, kids were, and we know this growing up, kids are fascinated by television. And it's they are mesmerized. And I guess nowadays the equivalent is p- kids with tablets yeah. or computers and phones and screens. So later on, um, uh, Lloyd and Mary, uh, they're at a dinner party with this woman named jo- uh, Joan Clooney. And Joan Clooney is uh, very instrumental in the foundation of Sesame Street. They're all at this big dinner party, and they're having, you know, they just finished this nice French dinner. And they're talking about television and how amazing the television is and, the, you know, about the programming and how, you know, crap is on TV nowadays. And, you know, it's a lot of it's just commercials and all this kind of a thing, these westerns or whatever these shows are. And uh, this guy, um, who is a psychiatrist, turns to her because she works she works as a producer for uh, the ad department, I think for PBS, or thirteen. He says, wouldn't it be interesting if we could find if a show could uh, be educational and be informative, be a kid show that would that would actually, you know, uh, be something that kids can learn from and not just be a commercial to sell products. And this girl, Joan Clooney, is like, yeah, that would that is a good idea. You know, we never really thought of
1: that. Yeah. See, Yeah, <laughs> see, that's actually a really good idea. So they so it kind
0: of sparks an idea there. So she goes back and she starts she starts doing this research, and she starts finding these things out, and looking around, and trying to figure this out. Uh, of maybe there would be. So Car- she she starts talking to this guy who's the vice president of Carnegie uh, Corporation. So Carnegie sets up this this uh, study, and they fund the, they find they fund this study, and she goes around the country and inter- interviews all these very, you know, learned people, scientists, children, teachers, psychiatrists, therapists, all this kind of stuff about if this could be done. And she comes up with this study, uh, this 55-page report called The Potential Uses of Television in Preschool Education. Because they realized, which I didn't realize up until we were little, is that um, in some uh, segments of the country, at least half of the country in the 60s and 70s didn't have access to either preschool or kindergarten classes. So I guess that was a uh, – kindergarten really had the – along with like the uh, – the, uh, commercialization in the 70s, all yeah. these revolutions, the, the, sex, the sexual revolution or the uh, feminist revolution and the, the, the gay revolution. That's also the educational revolution where they started really putting uh, kindergarten. It, I it, don't think you I know? went to kindergarten. You didn't? I went, to p- I went to kindergarten. I went to play group before that. And I even went to uh, preschool as well. I went to all three of these I things. I think I did. So you're fr- you right, went right into first grade.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was like a daycare that I went to but I don't think it was considered like preschool or, or kindergarten. I have to ask my mom. I mean, there's large segments of my life that are (laughs) just both spots.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So they realize that half, uh, you know, uh, half of the American school districts don't offer this. So they're thinking, you know, what they can really do is that there is between, they want to, they're thinking if they aim a show at, uh, at ages three to five uh, to teach them really kindergarten skills so they, they can kind of get a foot into the door because they're realizing that middle, the the like uh, middle income, you know, uh, earners uh, have an advantage over kids for who are from the inner cities or whatever who don't have access to this. That when they're coming in the first grade, they're behind the eight ball and they don't know what stuff is. So they're getting so frustrated at trying to just learn basics that yeah. that's what's keeping them behind. So they they start doing these uh, crazy studies and 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 and. They go through all this different thing and they come to realize, you know, putting all this money together, that there is this potential of of doing a show. That could be it's almost you could see this being done as like a PBS kind of or not like an HBO kind of series of trying to get this done. So this woman, Joan Cooney, goes all around the country. She gets all these minds together and they say, yes, but you have to do it this certain way. And what would you teach? What would be the curriculum? And they're like, oh, we could teach numbers. We could teach the alphabet. We could teach this and we could teach that. And uh, they start getting this idea together and then they come back to uh, Carnegie and Carnegie's like, you know, we'd fund it. And then they come back to PBS. Yo,
1: I'd, I'd fund that yeah, shit. Yeah, I'd
0: fund that <laughs> shit. <laughs> and then they come back to PBS, and PBS is like, well, we don't know if we really want to do it. You know, uh, the PBS chair says to her, you know, I don't know, you know, if we, we'd be able to work on this. It would be a uh, – uh, what, what kind of a, p- a proposal would be. And
1: she's like, really, what else you got
0: going I, on You know, PBS? well, that's the thing is PBS is such a small market, so then she goes to 13, and 13 doesn't know if they want to do it. So they have this epiphany when they're thinking about all this. Somebody says to them, you know – if you look at all these commercials that are on nowadays and you look at children, how children are so easily able to remember all these jingles and these commercials and all these little things about and they could sing back these commercial songs and all that. Why don't you just use these, the, use the same format and try to make uh little videos and segments in yeah. the same way, make jingles f- so that They're kids su- can learn. selling
1: the idea of,
0: of, of, of alphabets w- of or, learning, or letters yeah. and learning and all that kind of a thing. And, and they say, that, you know, that's a really, really, really interesting idea. So um, they end up thinking, well, that, that'll that be, you know, a, a really, really good thing. So then they bring in Jim Henson. And Jim Henson comes into the thing. And Jim Henson, they realize, well, why don't they bring Jim Henson in to, to try to be the first... Uh, he'll be he'll design you know they want to use the puppets and they and they're trying to figure out how it would work and they have a lot of the um the 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 consultants they 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 uh, consult they the the researchers and all these people say that they shouldn't have the puppets and the humans interact because they think it'll be it'll distort the realities between fantasy and reality they think that the there should be the segments should be just you know the puppets in one or the muppets in one in the in the yeah. and the people in the other and the production team they override this and they say no you know when they test it they bring henson aboard and henson uh comes in and he's gonna generate these these animations these live action segments to almost be like the brick and mortar between the live action segments to kind of cement yeah. and have a follow through and over and reinforce whatever the 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 aptitude or the the uh skill or the the curriculum is that day so they do all this stuff, Henson produces all this kind of stuff for them, and they realize that when they test this stuff out, the, the live action stuff's just really boring. So they say, you know, well, if we add the Muppets in, yeah. you know, and they add the Muppets in, and that's the stuff that actually starts rating. So they get the idea in, in, I think around, I guess at this point is like 1967, that they're going to do uh, a w- one hour program over 26 to 39 week cycle. With up to 130 episodes in just the first season, which is crazy to think that they're you know they're going to have to like get uh, producers, directors, people to set a curriculum, and they quickly realize that they're going to need like uh, set designers, you know that 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 they don't want it just to have like a, a Captain Kangaroo set, yeah, you know they want it to actually you know they want it to look like they're trying to figure out what kind of set it'll be, and they say you know what. If you look at it from a kid's point of view, especially living in a city, children are always looking on what's going on outside. They're always, you know, their mom's inside, they're stuck with, they always want to go out and play. So if you have this, if you set the setup to have it look like even like a brownstone and have it look like a New York City street or a side street and you have it look like uh... a movie set they spend the money and they make it look like it's an actual movie set not just like cardboard walls or this They make it look like a really really nice authentic area yeah. that'll be something that they can have the the show based upon uh, within and then they can't come up with an idea and the the first idea is the is the title is one two three avenue b and they end up coming up with sesame street so they end up coming up like it and that's like at the eleventh hour they really come up with just the name sesame street and uh, Hanson comes along, like I said, and he brings all these people into him. And they end up coming up with this show, and it premieres I, in 1969. Um, and w- what's interesting, too, is one of the first ideas is when they were going to keep the uh, the stuff separate, church and state almost, the puppets from the live action, is that it was almost going to be kind of like Fraggle Rock or Ninja Turtles, where like Oscar de Grasse was going to be living like uh, in a sewer, and he'd be like lifting it up, and all... It, all the puppets and animals, but we're going to be living underground in this kind of underground yeah, world,
1: underneath everything else.
0: Yeah, and that ends up being what uh, you know he ends up putting in his back pocket, and he ends up you know keeping his fraggle rock. But then he ends up designing, you know, he he realizes that he needs kind of the puppets, you know, to uh, to interact, and he comes up with Big Bird, and Big Bird is just a bona fide kid. Yeah, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you need the contrarian. So they get Oscar to grouch and he realizes he can bring Kermit in Kermit's also, you know, he got its start, you know, on Ed Sullivan and doing these kind of things. So all this kind of stuff comes together and they end up coming out 45 months later, this entire exhaustive process of get, of, of, of hiring people and they want every demographic and then they want to make sure that they're pitching it towards inner city kids specifically. Uh, and they want to have every denomination and creed and race uh, represented. They come out uh, in November the 10th, 1969, and it premieres, and it, it just goes off like hotcakes. And it's one of the most popular shows of the era. And they I think they get like a season into it, and people are fresh. They want more and more of Sesame Street, so then they, they quickly get together the electric company, and they put the electric company out, and you get people like um, season one, uh, the original, we said early, Gordon is Matt Robinson, whose uh, daughter is Holly Robinson. I was going to say, I have Who's to Officer Judy Hoffs
1: <laughs> from Get a Little 21 Jump Street. Uh, yeah. Actually, he was the original Gordon. Uh, and he also was an original producer on the show, I think. Yeah. But, uh, th- his daughter. Because they couldn't find anybody.
0: And he was producing. And he was helping do the segments, and they were trying to get. They were filling all these these people out. You know, they they got Loretta Long as Susan. They got Bob McGrath as Bob. They got uh, Will Lee, who's a legendary older uh, uh, Jewish actor, to play Mr. Hooper. 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 <laughs> <laughs> they got Carol Spinney to come in because they needed somebody else to play along. Because Frank Oz and Jim Henson were already had too many. You know, so they got. Uh, Carol Spinney to come in, and he'd be Big Bird because it was a very physically demanding. Because yeah. you know his arms held up like you know in the air, and that's you know o- above his head, and that's how um, Big Bird works. So when they're on set, they realize this guy who was a producer, Matt, he didn't really want to go in front of the camera. He was the most relaxed, and they're like, "Why don't we just give him the role?" So there's a funny story where his daughter Holly, who was very young, she I think was living in Philly at the time. She hadn't been seeing a lot of her dad because he's been up in New York doing this. So she sees the first episode and the first episode is 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 gordon walking around with the they're first they're going to say like how do we introduce the kids to sesame street you know so the yeah. idea was oh why don't we have a new kid move in and then the he can show the kid around and that's the four uh, f- the, the june four foray, <laughs> foray into the um into sesame street so uh little um Holly's at home watching, and then she suddenly sees on TV her father holding this other girl's hand, and she's like, "Where's Daddy been all this time? (laughs) He's got his new. He's got a new family." And she's like, "That's not Daddy's daughter." And then she then she sees her dad kissing something. She's like, "That's not mommy. He's kissing, and his name isn't Gordon." So she got really scared that it was like that. Her dad was like trying to find a new family, and they had to. And then she ended up, I think. Soon after getting acting roles, like as a kid on Sesame Street, because it was all very incestuous where they would bring their kids on and do this yeah. all this kind of a thing.
1: But she went on to play Judy Hoffs on my favorite show of all time, 21 Jump Street. Is so that really your favorite show of all time? I think it might, it's up there. Top, it's got to be top, in the top five, sure. Yeah. But uh, as everybody, as long-time listeners know, there was a period of time where we had sponsorship from Twenty One Jump Street, so we were contractually obligated to mention it in every episode. Sure. So this was a little th- this little A little, little, to little throwback <laughs> to that <laughs> to those days.
0: Um, yeah. So they, they you know, they, they get to the idea that you know the, that the kids can learn the catchy jingles and the commercials, uh, and they also have a great idea that is that that they would go to advertising agencies and they'd have they'd pitch. To advertising agencies to donate commercials quote-unquote to get them started so they had all these great advertising agencies donating these commercials as a donation to to this charity for them to you know you know whatever the segment you know one through five we know all these different things along with with henson was coming up with uh we should also mention um at the time here we have um jeff moss who is the writer and lyricist and poet who did a lot of stuff on the show? And then Joe Rapuzo, who is a musical prodigy who did a lot. He came up with the opening theme uh, to the show, you know, that really iconic. Uh, and he came up, you know, the theme, Sunny Days, and, you know, the, the opening theme and the ending, closing theme, as well as he came up with a lot of the, um, the jingles you'd hear on the show. And a lot of these, like, you know, like these, we were saying a lot of these, one, two, three, four, five, yeah, six, seven, eight yeah. kind of thing. But what ends up happening is that. This becomes so popular that it then works against Jim Henson because he gets pigeonholed because he didn't he came at this because he was doing it for the kids, but then at the same time as once he gets them on board, he's a stickler in the uh, you know in the boardroom about you know I I, want to. I want to have the rights to all my characters. I want to make sure I don't care about having a, f- a fee about performing. I want to be able to retain this. I want So, he, you know, he's very much about the contracts and deals and all that kind of a thing. So when this gets so big, he almost gets pigeonholed and the Muppets become f- treated like as a kid's thing. And he doesn't want it to be a kid's thing. And so he gets kind of scared and it becomes his worst enemy that now the Muppets are only being looked at. As a kid's kind of property when they were going at Sullivan doing stuff. And another big thing that we've talked about here at length uh, that played into this is that in the late 60s, Batman 66 was huge. And they had a lot of that pop art at the time, a lot of the spinning, the zaniness. Uh, And that was something that they were realizing kids and adults alike were both... Interested in, and at the same time, also Laughin was big at the time, and Laughin was also doing these quick vignettes and these these quick style hits. You know, you do a 20 second commercial with a punchline, and then you'd be out. So they realized maybe they should f- copy and format Sesame Street on the format of batman 66 as well as laughing because that was hitting both audiences kids would maybe not necessarily get all the laughing jokes but they were liking the zaniness and the comedy they were liking it watching it with their parents and they also dug the idea that there was a little bit for the kid but there was also jokes for the adult too and that's something jim henson liked to pride himself in doing these kind of things that on the face of it it's like you'd see now i guess on spongebob or say where like it's a kid's show, but there's a lot of adult jokes wrapped in. So the adult or the, you know, it can bring the family together, you know, and it can have this bonding experience for the family. And it wasn't just just for kids or just for adults. So they take the model off of Batman 66 with the zany, you know, you know, like that and the co- the color schemes and the transitions and laughing. And they, they mold this all into uh, Sesame Street that comes out in 69. But he gets pigeonholed in this and he doesn't like it. So that's when you start seeing him. Going out, uh, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but it's then he he's on the first season of Saturday Night Live. They have Jim Henson doing uh, Muppet uh, antics in between the sketch comedy of Lorne Michaels, you know, Trooper of characters. But it just wasn't a right fit, and even some of the writers on Saturday Night Live were kind of assholes. And they were like, we don't write for felt. Like, they yeah. were kind of, like, obnoxious about it. And I don't know how his... His uh, relationship with Lauren Michaels was, but, you know, they ended up parting ways, I think, after the, I guess, the first maybe season of, uh, of yeah. Saturday Night Live. I don't even know if they
1: lasted the whole season.
0: You know, because it just wasn't a right fit. I um, work in the industry with two guys. Um, I work with a gentleman who worked on the first two seasons of Sesame Street as a sound guy, and he used to talk about how crazy it was because him and Mr. Hooper would be in Mr. Hooper's store, like um, looking at the racetrack forms at Belmont, circling who they're going to be betting their horses on, and how much of a fun environment was at the time. And then I work with another gentleman who was on—he was a, uh, a, a cameraman on the first season of Saturday Night Live, and he talks about watching Frank Oz and Jim Henson come in and set up their stuff and all that kind of a thing. And the kind of the tension that, you know, it was kind of hard where a lot of some of the puppetry wasn't going over as well as the sketch comedy was. And that's why you see them starting to part ways. But I think Henson's pull there was he was trying to go for a different audience. And he was trying to show that, you know, because Sesame Street got so popular by after the first or second season that, like we said, he didn't have to do those commercials anymore. He was able to leave the ad world and. Uh, the residuals and the, and the commercialization that they were able to generate off all the product placements for Sesame Street were, were paying the bills, you know, handsomely. And it was really getting this little, uh, it became a proper corporation as opposed to this little art house kind of a uh, little, like, you know, husband and wife kind of a, a company that the, the the Jim Henson's little, you know, uh, company was at the time, Yeah, you know. So I think then that's where he starts getting the idea of pitching to uh, the three big networks a sketch comedy show. He yeah. wants to do like a Broadway like show, a prime,
1: prime time,
0: like a yeah, like an old like you'd see you know like uh, Jack Benny used to have a show in the fifties. His radio show as well as his TV show was basically him trying to get a show underway. That episode and all the antics. It's like the Joey Bishop show as well, where it's like the the the. Format of that show is they're a host of a show, a show within a show, and then it's them trying to get you know the antics of getting that show to air, which I guess is now what you're seeing very much again on the um, uh, Rock felt what's the Thirty, 30 Rock and that yeah. kind of a format. So Henson had an idea of first doing a Broadway show and then doing like a variety show that would be on like prime time, but all three uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS passed on it because they didn't think it was viable. So Henson goes to England and he goes to the legendary producer um, over there who we've had on this show before, uh, Lou, Lou Grade, who in, he pitches to in 1976 to, in the United Kingdom, uh, and he takes the chance, and they do it over in England, and I remember the guy who I knew who worked on Sesame Street, he said the people got really mad that, that Henson you know, closed up shop and went over there to do the Muppet Show, but if you look at the full extent of it, it's because they pitched... All domestically, nobody was interested, so the only thing he could do is go
1: overseas yeah. to London and part of the stipulation of making the show of producing the show was that he had to go Lou grade's part of his deal was I'll, i 'll you know i 'll put i 'll make the show i 'll pay for the show, but you have to do it here in Eng- you have to make it here in England yeah, it was part of the whole contract
0: and Lou grade has been on the show before too because then he ends up doing a race uh, raise the Titanic which ends up flopping, and he did another movie at the time that also flopped as well but yeah. They end up putting the Muppet Show on, and then, you know, you have the, the characters, Miss Piggy fills out, Gonzo, Fozzie Beer all come out of the Muppet Show, which uh, they pitch all that stuff in 76, so around 76, 77, the Muppet Show comes out. And that is so popular, and then it they sell it back to America, and it becomes – I think they, there's a stat saying that it is the most popular uh, comedy show of all time or a variety show of that kind of a format where at, in its height – It was syndicated in over 100 countries in, like, 15 languages, like Mandarin, Russian. Like, you know, it was insanely popular. It was the most famous TV series, weekly TV series of all time or something like that. And um, he does that for, I think, about five years. And then they end up working to the Muppet movie and doing the Muppet movie. And then once the Muppet movie is so successful... That's the reason why they end up stopping them up at show is to concentrate on doing theatrical films and doing more stuff that kind of a way. so it's funny that any he gets such a success with them up at show that he ends up coming back and, and having to, they have to come back and buy it over here. So I think he takes a back step from Sesame Street, the children's television workshop, and he's able to then focus on doing them up at show in Saturday Night Night Live and then from there he's able to um focus then on doing the next step, which is the Muppet movie and doing going into the Muppet movie. But first, I think we should take a break and hear a very special announcement from our sponsors this week.
2: After these messages, we'll be right
1: so we're sitting here, we're talking about Jim Henson and Frank Oz and everybody that makes Muppets, and they're the most creative people ever. But Jim Henson was also a pretty savvy businessman. So it's quite serendipitous that today's episode is sponsored by a fantastic resource for both creatives and entrepreneurs. It's called Skillshare. Skillshare
0: is an online community with over 25,000 classes in everything from making puppets and marionettes to music theory to filmmaking to web design. It even has business and marketing.
1: I've been checking out some of the music theory classes. Have you? I have.
0: Let me tell you about
1: it. <laughs> they have an ongoing class called Music Theory for Electronic Music Producers. It's very cool and it's super comprehensive. But I've also been meaning to learn Adobe Premiere for work because I've been putting it off. But now, thanks to Skillshare, I'm finally going to take the time to learn it.
0: I'm interested in taking some of their many classes on YouTube marketing because I want to become a YouTube star. I've also been thinking about getting more into photography, and they have some great courses on working with DSLR cameras. But with classes covering everything from web design to interior design, marketing, business, it's almost too hard to choose what you want to learn.
1: And one of the great things about Skillshare is that it is a community. It's interactive. So there's the classes, and a lot of the classes have assignments and projects, and you can upload your projects and your assignments and you get feedback from the instructors. So if you're as excited as we are about learning
0: and interested in checking out Skillshare, you, the listener, have two months of unlimited free access to their thousands of classes at Skillshare. Just go to Skillshare.com SAT.
1: That's right. Just sign up at Skillshare.com SAT, and you can get started on your two months of free Skillshare. One last time for everybody in the back. Go sign
0: up at Skillshare.com SAT and you won't regret it. We're back, and we're ready to go. Now, Muppet movie. We're this far along, if you're still listening. (laughs) God bless you. It's been a rough and tangled night. Uh, You know, we've had a lot of stuff going on. We've been all over the map trying to summarize Sesame Street. We left things in. We left things out. Um... And now we work ourselves up to the Muppet movie from 1979.
1: So I gather they probably shoot this in 78.
0: Yeah. But the the big concern, too, is that I guess one of the first worries they have is that how will the Muppets look outside of the studio in the real world?
1: Well, I th- yeah, because I think part of the original plan was uh, the director, James Frawley. Yeah. Who... Uh, had, had been coming off a lot of television. He directed episodes of The Monkeys, Yep. Uh, that Girl, Columbo. And later, even after The Muppet Show, he starts doing Magna P.I. and Cagney and
0: Lacey. Yeah, he does a whole bunch of Cagney and Lacey. That's my story <laughs> right there.
1: <laughs> Father Dowling
0: Mysteries. That's my story right Some there, long too. Order.
1: <laughs> and he... And there's another uh, project that he directed that well, has been brought up on this show many times.
0: You said, yeah, Melrose Place, Law and Order, uh, for ter- for, uh, you said Lake, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, Magnum PI, n- the new Mike Hammer. Uh, he did another Midnight Run. Is that what you're talking about?
1: No, well <laughs> okay, we have but talked <laughs> about that yeah, as because well. that was
0: your with uh, Christopher McDonald's uh, Eddo Ross. Jeffrey Tambor. I was and talking Kathy
1: Moriarty. I was talking about the movie that he directed, the television movie from two thousand, the Three Stooges.
0: Yes, and he did the Three Stooges the TV movie, movie with Michael Chiklis, because
1: Dion and I are some of the strongest <laughs> supporters of that, movie. <laughs> of that, of that particular <laughs> TV movie. I feel like somebody else we know was talking.
0: Was that Mike Vanderbilt? We were talking about that. But he did the – I guess they did a Paper Moon TV series off the movie from 1975, 1974, 1975. Um, And then he went on to do Chicago Hope, Ally McBeal, The Practice, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, And he's since passed away either this year or last year. He passed away. So I think it was an idea that they were worried – Henson wanted to direct it, but then they realized, I think, again – Lou grade was like, you know, you, 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 you can't be doing It's yeah, your first movie you got enough on your plate. Yeah. You're, you know, you're doing the creative end of everything. Why don't you try to take a step back and relax and let somebody else come in and direct while you just work on the creative aspect of acting and directing and producing and not just, you know, or acting and directing, acting and writing, not directing, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. um,
1: but I think because, you know, they were coming off of television and, Sesame Street and The Muppet Show had been pretty uh, you know closed you know everything was done on sets. yeah and probably also because uh, James Frawley was coming out of television and doing things on like The Monkeys, which is also mostly on sets yeah that uh, I think he was leaning towards they, they would do it all in the st- within the studio on sound stages yeah and it was Henson that was like no I think we can Oh, or I want
0: to. Yeah. We've like done I, that already with The at Show. And you the know, if we're going to do a
1: movie, let's put them out in the real world. Yeah. So they I, did this. And so he flies. So Frawley flies to England because that's where uh, Henson and, and Frank Oz are. And we haven't talked enough about the brilliance of Frank Oz yeah. uh, to shoot to shoot uh, tests. So he brings out an 8mm camera and they go off onto like the – the English countryside yeah, right outside of London
0: <laughs> on the in, the in the suburbs and they do these camera tests to see what the puppets what Fozzie what uh, Miss Piggy or not you know Miss Piggy's in it but what f- what Kermit and Fozzie would look like interacting with the real world so you have these hilarious camera tests which I think I feel like kind of end up you see little iterations of that in their dialogue later on in the movie when they're in the car in the Sudebaker together you see yeah. some of that a little like when they're looking at the ma- map you know, a lot of that back and forth, but this these improvisations of them interacting with, like, cows at a farm or in a car or driving or walking around or just – just see how the the actual physical puppets would look in a real-world environment, which is something I feel like they would have already kind of done to a certain extent on Sesame Street. I mean, because there's Cause stuff you in the Sesame opening Street, and you know, stuff, but – You have Sesame Street doing, like, the Sesame Street Christmas special where they do, like, this this Sesame Street on ice. Like, you have an element to that, but I guess they're worried about maybe it being a movie and movie quality, movie film, or what they're going to be shooting on, and then if they're going to be at all locations for the most part.
1: But it's in those tests that, you know, are on, like, the Blu-ray and the DVD, and I'm sure they're online, and you see shots of them in every documentary about Jim Henson and the Muppets and all that stuff. To me, where you really see, like, the comedic brilliance of Frank Oz. Yeah. Because Rin really, Henson, too. Well, yeah, but it's like Henson's more. When you watch that stuff, like Henson is clever. Yeah. And his reactions to Fozzie are clever. But, like, Frank Oz as Fozzie just ad living is just so brilliantly funny. Frank
0: Oz now wits. And,
1: and like when he's talking to the cows and he's just making all these silly cow puns, yeah, it's just it's really funny as, as in character, as yeah, Fozzie. as Fozzie. You so know. it's uh,
0: Fozzie doing like like shitty jokes as a, you know, like a stand-up comedian to these cows, doing these you know the otter, what otter, you know, like yeah, all yeah. these uh, come back and they you know, they're all, and they all come over to him and they're listening. And then you can hear they're 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 making themselves laugh, they're cracking themselves up to the point where you can see them laughing. And then they get into a car. And they're their, their driving, and you see them, and you're trying to figure out where they are in the car. And, you know, they're probably just down in the – you know, not, not in the wheel well, but down in the fo- – yeah. underneath the, the dashboards, and it's just amazing looking because they look like they're just real Muppets. You know, they're looking at stuff, you know, the, the, the windshield wipers and all them And it's these really brilliant, you know, camera tests. And I think they must have brought Miss Piggy out too because that's – Frank Oz does that as well. Yeah. You know, and it's weird because you get these, like, you know, they, they become this comedy team, the two of them, where you have – um, you know Kermit and Fozzie. You have Kermit and and Miss Piggy. You have Bert and Ernie. You know you, it's it's you know in in Bert and Ernie sense it's Jim Henson's playing the the comedian in Ernie and Bert is the more you know the more conservative one or the more you know straight up narrow yeah. guy and. Uh, Conversely, when you get Fozzie's more of the jokester where Kermit's kind of the straight man, you know, and Miss Piggy's just her own little hilarious little, you know, uh, revelation of a of of an actress, you know. Um, But you really see that the the brilliance of them working together, which goes back to, um, you know, them working on the they they brought him in to do them up at show or even prior to that, they were working with Frank Oz. And it's just amazing. The two of them. I mean, it's just a because they become close in real life, too. And it's just a, a a comedic gel. They work so well together. They're you know they're almost inseparable, in in, in a sense. And they start to develop this movie of, uh, and it's almost like, it's kind of Jim Henson's, like an allegory of his life of what he wanted to do. And then you, if you look at people always said that Kermit was Jim Henson's alter ego because Jim Henson would be able, he was always a bashful kid who had bad acne growing up. So that's why he always had the beard to kind of cover the acne scars. So he was always bashful and kind of reserved, but then the, you know, he was always very outgoing when he had this Muppet at or this puppet on his hand. So Kermit was kind of his alter ego in that kind of a sense, be able to say, or be more daring than, you know, say real life, Jim Henson would want to be. Yes. So you start to see that with the two of them or, you know, and, and this movie becomes this kind of um the this this again, this allegory for his life and his what he wanted to do or, or up into that time, his uh rise to Hollywood or to fame, you know. Um Well,
1: you know, I think the the brilliance of the Muppet Show and the Muppet movie are that they, they're playing on like classic Hollywood archetypes and probably even just literary archetypes, but like this idea of like let's put on a show. Yeah. You know, those kinds of movies back in the day. Or this, you know, the dreaming of, you know, going to Hollywood and you know and then and then setting out on this adventure across country to do it and picking up people along the way and, and ultimately putting on a show. You know, making them up at movie when they get there. Um you know it's it's they're Devices in in and dr- drama and and cinema that are like age old, yeah. And so to so that they're identifiable to everybody. Everybody relates to them. But then you you you're telling those stories through the prism of of Henson and Oz and all these brilliant people that he's assembled. I mean, you think of Jim Henson. You know, the brilliance of of having the mind to say, you know, why should we shoot puppets the way y- they are on behind a puppet stage? Let's shoot them like we would people. Like, that's one stroke of brilliance. The idea of his his business savvy is another stroke of brilliance. Uh, but maybe his greatest talent is being able to recognize talent. And bringing all these people and, together, and yeah. And assembling a team that really created magic
0: yeah we brought jerry nelson up before who's on Emmett otter a bit you know he's the voice of Emmett, but he's in there too he's amazing i mean he had you're right he has uh david goals i think his name is who who did uh who's gonzo i mean he really brings these all these people together that that are just uh, or geniuses. just or
1: just like the writers which yeah you know we have also talked a little bit about you know like uh jack burns and jerry jewel and yeah being able to recognize you know we t- I feel like we talked a little bit about this maybe not in Creep Show but in previous uh George Romero cast because when I interviewed John Harrison and also Donald Rubenstein, who did the music for Martin and John Harrison did the music for Creep Show and Day of the Dead you know I talked to them about like maybe Romero's biggest talent was really like recognizing talent and these people and saying like hey you want to do the music or to Mike Gordonick, who had never shot a movie before they're doing like, hey, you want to shoot this yeah, movie? Yeah. <laughs> and then Mike Gordnick becomes a cinematographer. And then he ends up dr- directing Creepshow 2. Um, yeah. You know, Henson has that too. Like the willingness to collaborate uh, and not be so uh, controlling. Yeah. But also recognizing the brilliance of all these people and then bringing them all together and creating an environment that they all want to work in. And then, the, then their creativity can thrive in.
0: Yeah, and it, and he's also making it. Yeah, a comfortable environment where people are able to
1: that they want to do. They want to be there. They want to do good. Well, for him. Yeah, but then it's also fun, and they're
0: bringing ideas to the table, and he's supposedly was also very nice to work with in the sense of how he would take idea if he liked it he's like let's do that or if he didn't like it he'd say hmm you know we let's think you know he wouldn't you know he he didn't really have a mean streak in him or he but he would also, lash out
1: he might come up with the visual design for uh some of the muppets or all of the muppets but then in the hands of people like Frank Oz and all the other puppeteers like they, those were characters that they created sure You know, Frank Eyes always talks about how, like, each one has a different facet of kind of his own personality. Yeah. Um, And that's something that can only come from someone who's willing to collaborate. And it's just, you think of how much, especially
0: with The Muppet Show, how much is involved there with the, um, you know, staging that show and just doing these little, if you're doing videos, if you're doing, like, you know, in the Navy with the Vikings. Or if you're doing, like, you know, Leader of the Pack. Or, you know, you just think about, like, these just how much is involved where you actually have to physically make. I mean, nowadays you can use a computer, but they're making, you know, you have to make the leather jacket or the Viking outfit for the skit, then you have to make the boat, and then you have to put everything on risers so that you can – People are standing there with their hands up. Then you're having the camera be that high, and then you got to have risers to support whoever the actor is. That you know, so the the actor's walking, the famous person of the week is walking around on, on that. You know, it's just so involved the world that they're, you know. Well, there's all, and you never think about that when you're looking through the frame. Yeah, you know, you never think that below you. It's all you know. Th- you just think it's real. It's a real room, or it's a real stage. It's a real theater. You know, uh, or you know, wherever they're putting it on. It's just it's 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 fascinating.
1: I mean, there's there's all that, but then there's also just the act of making puppets, Sure. which is you know maybe Muppets traditionally the Jim Henson style Muppet that we think of in a traditional sense might not be that uh, difficult to create because it's it's but. You know, puppetry in general, the hardest part is, like, to make puppets and figure out how to make them work. And um it's really, like, it's an engineering job. Yeah. You know, and maybe something like Kermit is a little, you know, less complicated. But then when you get to something like Big Bird or... uh What's oh, the big monster? Oh, Cephalopagus. Well, Cephalopagus was the one in the Muppet movie. Oh, you probably with Jack, where the movie theater? Yeah, yeah. Jack not name, Jack <laughs> job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, those are really complicated, and, and it, it takes a certain kind of like engineering brain, yeah. to figure out how to make those things work. And when you listen to someone like Frank Oz talk about, it's like, yes, when we th- there's the ex- there's the physical aesthetic of the outside of the puppet that will, you know, inform how. The voice he uses or the character that he creates. But then there's the very important part of that, like, on the inside. That his hand, like, they have to be comfortable. They have to be balanced in a certain way so that they're easy to manipulate. Like, all that is extremely important. And that's stuff that none of us ever see. Sure. what's going on in the inside of of, of those things.
0: Especially if you have something that's involved as, like... uh, like a Fozzie Bear or a Ralph the Dog where you have... Two different puppeteers yeah, using their hands they, there's in a unison. Yeah, so you have the main guy, say Frank Oz is in Fozzie Bear, and he's doing, with his right hand, he's doing Fozzie's mouth. With his left hand, he's doing his left arm. And then you have another puppeteer in there, and they used to call it doing, when you when you're an apprentice... On the Muppet Show or the Muppets or Sesame Street, you're you know you're do, you're the right hander, and that means you, you work your way up. Do, you're being the right hand for the other guy for how many how many years until you get that. But you think about like stuff like uh, you know Ralph the dog where he's playing piano. Yeah, it, you know it's, it's like he's playing actual piano. You know to a certain extent. And or a lot of that was driving a car for Fozzie. Especially
1: in the early days before the Muppets and stuff, that was probably Frank. Oz doing the right hand on Ralph.
0: Yeah, well, you know, or and then, and you have, yeah, because you have, um, it's, it's, on the Jimmy Dean show. It's uh, the, uh, it's, uh, Kermit, or it's, Jim Henson playing that. And then you get to the part where it's like in, in the Muppet movie where it's, uh, Kermit singing with Ralph. It's Jim Henson singing to himself, you know, it's yeah. him doing a duet with himself. Uh, there's a great designer, they, Don Salin, S A H L I N, he created a lot of the Muppets. Yeah. up I think and stuff we talked like a little bit
1: about him in Everett Otter also, and he
0: was a kind of guy that, like, you know, uh, Henson was ingenious about how he would he would sketch up these designs about what he would, his idea of how something would work, and then the, uh, Dom would go and actually create and fabricate whatever they were actually talking about doing. And then Henson was also one of the first guys to pioneer using monitors, you know, and having the idea of your you can watch your performance on a monitor either strapped to your waist or you're looking at a TV in front of you and you're just above you looking at your performance. I mean, and you think about these are in the era of tube monitors. So if you're inside Kermit, not Kermit, if you're inside Big Bird or you're inside something as big as Snuffleupagus, you know, it could be more than one person. I mean, Big Bird's one guy. But, like, if you're in stuff, I guess it's kind of like the horse, you know, where it's like there's somebody yeah. at the ass there's somebody at the other end. You have monitors strapped to your chest. You're looking down. With Big Bird, you know, Carol Spinney's then having his arm up in the air, and he's got to, you know, work it and articulate it. I mean, and then it's it's a physically grueling and demanding position to be in where you're going to sweat balls. And that was something where, like, Frank Oz, the reason why they took Carol Spinney for – they brought him on for Sesame Street was Frank Oz is like, I don't want to do that anymore. They did a La Joy uh chinese uh, ad for the chinese food like chinese food in a can or whatever yeah. that the, the Lejoy, and they did this big uh uh, Le, uh i'm sorry la choy and they did the la dragon and it was frank oz and this freaking dragon for this commercial and the commercial had a mom and a son and the mother was beverly uh owen from from um uh, comes around from the Muppets, <laughs> uh, from the munsters because she was now married to john stone at the time and uh, Frank Oz was in this freaking, uh, you know, dragon where she's like looking for something to eat in the supermarket. She turns the corner and she sees this stand for La And then this dragon comes up to her like, why don't you get the sun? And it breathes and it blows fire and it sets the La banner on fire. And she's like, wow, I'll get that for dinner. So like Frank Oz dealt with that. He's like, I don't want to be in a freaking thing like that yeah. again so they got carol spinney to then be the guy who'd be big bird so it's like amazing to think like all the like the real grueling it's almost like the, the shit you hear about lon chaney having to actually conform and you know yeah. or boris Karloff, you know jack pierce is deforming him with the prosthetics to be in frankenstein or the outfit you know you're really it's what you're really doing for your what you're doing for your art but they do get the idea of Doing this kind of a, a this road kind of a movie where you have this idea of, you know, Kermit uh, gets the idea to go on the road to try to go to to an audition in Hollywood that said they're looking for frogs. And they, uh, along the way, he f- meets all these other people who have
1: this similar dream well, of wanting to be. Well, we should mention that the agent that tells him about the audition is Dom
0: DeLuise. Well, yeah, a mustacheless Dom DeLuise, too. Which so so Dion mean, doesn't really trust him about that beard.
1: Because he, he's an agent. But, well, we start that off with But you. we should mention that his son, Peter DeLuise, <laughs> is also in, he all comes around, <laughs> he was in 21, 21 Jump, Jump Street.
0: Street. dun dun you know, the movie starts the Muppet movie where they're going to the you know premiere at Worldwide Studios, and it becomes awesome, all all, all, all very self-aware at the beginning. Where you're learning, it's a movie premiere. You know, they're uh, they're everyone's arriving. Statler and Waldorf are arriving. They're coming to this projection room for the first screening. Kermit's there with the Muppets. We all know the Muppets supposedly from the Muppet Movie. We're getting ready for this big thing. You know, he's like, I thank everybody, and then the movie starts. And they're like, Roll the film. Stop talking. Let's roll the film. And then you have this beautiful, beautiful. Um, starts in the clouds, and, it, and it's like, you know, for a kid, like a Vista like that, you're like, holy shit, you know, it's like, you're, 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 you're ready for anything, and then you have the title with the rainbow, you know, and it's yeah. like, oh, and then you're going through the clouds, and then you hear the opening to the Rainbow Connection, and to me, it, that's this Paul Williams song, where it's just like, one of the best written songs of all time, and it's just such a, I mean, that hit like the top, Uh, the pop charts when it came out, it was nominated for Academy Award. Um, And you have this beautiful, this beautiful helicopter shot where it comes into the swamp and you see uh, Kermit's on this, uh, on a uh, a log playing banjo. And it's like, how the hell, you know, it's one of these, how the hell did they do it? Kind of things. And for any kid watching, it's like, Oh, Kermit's alive. That's how they did it. Kermit's playing the banjo, but it's, they, they did this device where, um, uh, Jim Henson had to get into this barrel, like actually like a, almost like a diving bell. They fabricated this drum, and he had to get into it. And he's like 6'5 or 6'6". Six six. They had to scrunch him in there with a monitor with a rubber arm sticking out so he can operate Kermit. And then I guess there were three Kermits. There was the Kermit that could play the banjo. There was Kermit that can, you know, for the long shot of when they're coming in. And then there was the Kermit for the close-ups. And uh, he does this beautiful song. And the song is like when you have musical theater, you have that kind of setting up like the want song. Like you have like in Belle at the beginning of yeah. Beauty and the Beast, what they want. You know, she she's in, dreaming of a different kind of a life that's different from this pedestrian life. And or, here he wants... I want to be where the people yeah, are. I want to <laughs> be, see them dancing. <laughs> I want to know what's the word? <laughs> Turn. You know, it's like, so, there, you know, you set up, it's the one, it's the idea, you set up the goals of what the character wants and what the character's dreams are. And you have this beautiful k- sing that encompasses, and it's a really deep song. Because when I was little, I used to, you know, you'd listen to the lyrics about, like, you know, ha- have you been half asleep and have you heard voices? You know, I've heard them calling my name. Mm-hmm. Is it the voices that sailors hear? And they're talk- I'm thinking, is that, like, the sirens that drift the sailors in the rocks? Those si- <laughs> You know what I mean? Those kind of... <laughs> this
1: shit's fucked up, Yeah, you bad. know,
0: it's, it's... Well, I mean, to the point where they've... If you take the Paul Williams sa- soundtrack... There are longer versions of the songs that I guess they deem too mature, so they cut kind of the some of the sections out for the movie, which I really don't understand. But it is a little involved, where you're like, "Oh, this is really kind of interesting." So at the end of that first song, when he's kind of done f- playing this awesome freaking banjo, and then you you know you you hear Dom DeLuise scream screaming help, and it's the first cameo, and he's you know he it's you know he's uh, you know I'm you know I'm the whatever what he says, but it's just it's you know just his little camera is even funny, where he's like you know what is he he calls it the dream the the uh, the magic store the dream factory, which I've never heard. I wonder if they've called that in the old days Hollywood the. The magic store, or the
1: dream factory. I think so. I think that sounds familiar to me. You know, he's um, like Marty the agent. He's yeah, like him, K- He's Kermit like, Kermit you know, m-
0: you may not know yeah, exactly, you know, <laughs> alligators, but it's funny. He's like, you know, you didn't know I'm from Hollywood. <laughs> it's so, it's just so subtle. And then he tells him, like, hey, you know, like you said, he says that there's this, that there's this, um, this audition you should try out. And Kermit's like, yeah, maybe I should just. So he packs up his bags, and the next scene you see is another. Mind-breaking special effect where he's drive Kermit's riding a bicycle, and I remember for years me trying to figure out how the hell they're doing it. And I guess it's something as basic as I think they just have a crane, and he's doing the, it's the old marionette style. Where they're just suspending yeah. him, and he's just it's 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 robotic, and it's but just you uh, know. To
1: my recollection, the swamp is, if I recall correctly from my many studio tours, is on the Warner Brothers lot. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and what's interesting about they have a like a body of water. There in the middle of the of the middle of the, you know, the back lot. Yeah. And they have, you know, d- plants and trees planted all around it. Yeah. And, but there are like different regions in each spot. So there's like, ba- there's like a bamboo section. For Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. So that they can. Yeah. You can shoot whatever <laughs> so you So that it can yeah. double. For Florida. For the
0: Bayou. For, yeah. For Asia or whatever. That's and. Uh, very forward thinking.
1: Yeah. And then you th- and they
0: and uh, when you went on that tour, you think that they shot that there.
1: I think they said that that shot, that the opening shot, Kermit was shot there. That
0: real, that first opening shot, it's it's somewhere in Florida. You could tell they're yeah. in the bayou, and then they do like a they do like almost a dissolve or, a, uh, a you know, and then in, and then you see that they're onto the set, and it's a very impressive shot. And then the very next scene, he's he's riding a bicycle, and I love he's playing. He's a lefty. Jim Henson was left-handed like I am, so he's playing the banjo yeah. lefty. But it's a
1: uh, it's just a stone's throw away from the uh like the town center of oh, uh, oh, of yeah. like Dukes of Hazard sure. and the end of Monster Squad. It's all that very yeah. You know, it's, it's, back li- it's literally like you can s- almost see the town ta- like that town square with the church. Set <laughs> with the church. Yeah, that's not
0: the same as Back to the Future. No, that's different. That's yeah, a yeah. different one. Which is Remlins, right? Yeah that's <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. universal. I um, think. So you know, and then you have the next scene where he's he meets uh, um, what's his name Max. And when I was little, you end up learning Max is um, uh, Austin Peddleton. Pettles- he's uh, Doc Hopper's right hand man, and he was always my favorite growing up. Was Max? I love Max the driver. You, you know, you always
1: liked him, and you liked uh, Bob. From Bob the Goon. Yeah, from, <laughs> from the, yeah I
0: always like the henchman, <laughs> the right hand guy of a guy. That's a good point. So you see, you know, you introduce to him, and then there's the steamroller, and he jumps. But now on IMDb, if anybody's out there listening can clarify for us who are, who are, who are still listening to us, they say Albert Finney has a cameo, too, and I can't figure out where he is. But when Kermit jumps onto the steamroller, I'm wondering if Albert Finney is the steamroller driver. Because it kind of looked like him, but then it's just a waste. Maybe there was something on the cutting room floor. Yeah. You know, because there are extended scenes that they
1: kind of, you know. um, Now, I've noticed in watching the movie tonight. That your Charles Durning impression is specifically Charles Durning from this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm only doing Zach <laughs> Hopper. And, and hey, I'm Zach Hopper. You know, so even when we're doing. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> hey little
0: cool girl. Everyone loves the mailman. Yeah, it's
1: all <laughs> you know, Dark
0: Night of the Scarecrow. And Dark and, and uh, Charles Durning's great in this movie too. It's it, it, uh, you know, it, to me, it's one of these movies where the more you watch it, the funnier stuff you can pick out. And there's just the subtlety of seeing stuff where it's like, um, you know, uh, when he. He corners uh, Derning and he's and he or Derning corners Kermit, and he's trying to um, get him to um, to to watch the commercial and become a of their 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 whatever you call it, their sponsor or their pitch man. You, if you look at Derning, Derning's like singing along. He's yeah. like lip-syncing. Like, Fa, la, like, you know, it's like almost like an amateur – act. you know, it's so funny. But they go to the El Slizo Cafe, and I love, you know – I mean, every line of this movie for me is quotable. He's like, oh, foreign food. And then you have James Colburn gets kicked out of the place, and he's the owner. You walk in, and to me, I think it's called The Blue Parrot. And is The Blue Parrot Sydney Green Street's place in Casablanca? Maybe. You know, I think it's called the Blue Parrot or it's something parrot. And uh, to me, you know, it's this, it's this dive bar in the middle of some, you know, slum. But okay. when they walk in, it's suddenly, you know, they're like in Casablanca where you see like sheiks walking I by. I thought you were going to
1: bring up La Vagina.
0: It, the La Vagina <laughs> from, that's another, that's, that's such a, people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Like tell them a the little lo- Very quick. Okay, tell Is it at the
1: New Yorker? Yeah, is it's that at where the New it it's, not, it's not there anymore. Not anymore. For a short time. <coughs> there was a uh, you know on the first on the ground floor of the New Yorker Hotel in uh, Midtown Manhattan next to the Penn Station, right across or, right Garden, right diagonal from Penn Station and and uh, Madison Square Garden. Um, it's where Dion and I went to our first horror convention, the New Yorker Hotel. And uh, but so you know a lot of the hotels have like a restaurant or a bar on the first on the ground floor, and f- there was a time there in the early two thousands where I guess they, what did they call the Virginia. Was that what they named it? I, I don't remember even because I was explaining
0: this a little while it was ago. Called
1: the, they had named it like La Virginia or something like that, but the, it was a neon sign, and it was in cursive. So if you really just kind of looked at it, you couldn't really tell what it said. It looked like it said La Vagina. Yeah. <laughs> so we Blake and I started calling it the La Vagina, but I think it was called la, maybe like the Virginia. The the la, 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 Virgi- la Virginia or maybe like La Virgins, like Island or something. I, but it looked like La Vagina. So Deanna and I would always <laughs> refer to it as La Vagina. And I... <laughs>
0: Funny enough, I went there with our friend Max, (laughs) Matt, the saxophone Garrison, the wrestler, saxophone player. One night uh, after work, and we were, I was meeting him down there, and I I I was like, like, "We went
1: there for a drink one time,
0: too. Did we once? Well, we him and I went down there. uh, He was playing a gig. I was getting out of work, so like, where do you want to go get a drink? And we were down by Eighth Avenue, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Hey, let's go to La Vagina." (laughs) And I was, he's like, "Where is that?" And I said, and I told your story (laughs) you just said. We walked in, and we're drinking, and we were with a a girlfriend of his that was a musician as well well and the three of us were talking and I was probably relaying to them the the lava vagina story we looked over and it it was kind of dead in the bar bar, because it was a weeknight the entire lineup of the b-52s walked in huh and they walk in they look around like they're looking for somebody and then they leave and I was like, that was the B-52s. Like walked in like, I'm a love track, <laughs> baby. I'm a, you know, walking in a sail and love track. You know, it's la like a vagina, th- vagina. La vagina. Looking all around the people, you know, <laughs> and around and around. So, But it was them. And I was like, what the hell? They just walked into the Vagina, and they turned right. So anyway, El Sleazo Cafe. Yeah. Not La Vagina. Not love Vagina. But then you walk in, and all of a sudden, it looks like one of these like places in the 30s Warner Brothers movie where it's like, yeah. you know, intrigue. You know, Peter Lorre's going to walk in like, hide me. Or rick you know that kind of a place and he ends up meeting um madeline Kahn's oh, there the very beautiful Oh, Madeleine god Kahn. bless her buy me a twink <laughs> and got, and he's saying camera's like i don't uh, i don't i don't i don't even know you and then and then he's just and then Telly Savalas turns around. He's like, You know, are you talking to my girl? And he's like, No. <laughs> I was like, You know, uh, 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 he, uh, and what did she say? Oh, he touched me. He's like, Go get your, go get, go wash up. He's got warts. He goes, That's a myth. And he goes, What? A myth. He goes, Well, that's my myth. He goes, No, myth, myth. You know, it's, and then you have, what's her name? Carol, isn't it? What's her uh, face?
1: Carol. From,
0: Kane. Uh, C- Kane. From, from um, Taxi. From Taxi and, and Princess um, bride. bride. And his, uh, b- b- uh, what's his face? Uh, from uh, Man in the Moon. His, his girlfriend in real life. They were going out. Uh, Eddie, well, Andy Coffin. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, they were also a couple on, on, on Taxi. Yeah, yeah. I thought they were, were – uh, She was re- in Gotham. Yes. She played the, the Penguin's mom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the f-
0: first couple seasons. But she shows up, you know, yes, when he says, myth, myth. So. And then um, you get Paul Williams come out again. Paul Williams is the piano player. They wake him up, and he, and he turns the thing over, you know, what is it, the uh, don't shoot the piano player. Or you know, yeah, yeah. or it's a sign up? Yeah, and then and then he, uh, which is a joke for f- you know film heads will know that there's a there's a um a movie called Don't You, you know, the We Should player. Mention that
1: he wrote all those songs with a guy named Kenneth Asher.
0: Yeah, Kenneth Asher. I think th- th- um I don't know if it was l- if it was just both of them doing lyrics or if they're if if he was doing jingles and and he was doing
1: the lyrics. Which I was saying, I was thinking because if you look at Kenneth Asher online, and I don't know if he still is, but apparently, according to the intern, the internet. Yeah, he plays piano in the Birdland band. Oh, you could take your record to Birdland and go get him to sign and, and, and it. And, and I have s- Paul Williams, you Paul Williams signed yeah. it already. And, and when I saw,
0: it was basically about a year ago. I saw Paul Williams <laughs> doing a little. Have talked little
1: about a little bit in uh, in in honor and Edmund otter
0: yeah. yeah, when I saw him, he talked a little bit about the Muppet movie, and he talked about his uh, for doing the Muppet movie. He said that he didn't have to worry about. Um, uh, 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 i was gonna say hendrix um henson <laughs> yeah, jimmy <laughs> hendrix i didn't have to worry about jimmy hendrix. Yeah, jim henson uh there was no worry about having to hear the songs in advance you know uh henson had mm-hmm. complete yeah, confidence Henson's in him went,
1: i trust you yeah he
0: said i'll just you know hear him in the studio and 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 then williams said that was quite unbelievable because usually like he did uh the the um the book for um uh, a star is born he said that was a very different uh, t- at the time they were you know breathing over you and you know that's a very different uh what he's used to working with and he talked about it when i saw him about you know like the that um uh rainbow connection was kind of like the wish upon a star pinocchio kind of song like we said like you know yeah. that that you know, you're trying to make kermit and jim part of the audience and to to, to get them in to rope them in at the beginning uh and we can go on a little more about some of the other songs in there but yeah uh he also wrote it with uh, Paul Williams. So Paul Williams starts playing the guitar. He meets – then you have Fozzie come out. The and piano. Uh, He starts playing the piano. And Fozzie comes out. And I love that on the on – the, um, it's what is it? The El Sleeso Cuties is like the name. <laughs> but I guess I, I guess they're on vacation or something. So he's up there and he's completely bombing these jokes, you know. And then Kermit goes up to help him. And then, you know, they, they get into a fight and he gets – they do the joke. Everybody drinks on the house. Um
1: and it's it's like you know the, the uh,
0: it, all the little like thank you thank you and there's one person
1: clapping he's like and thank you you know oh, it's there's like there's a dance number which they did in front of a green blue blue well, screen and which I is guess. what
0: we get for a little bit of the labyrinth there you know where you have yeah. a labyrinth of uh, remember that that real freaky bit of labyrinth where they're taking their heads off and they're doing that kind of stuff yeah that's kind of that effect of where they do they'll have the puppet in front of like a blue screen and they key them out you know and and it works really well there because that's the first time you actually see. Them in full body, yeah. Like you moving. never, yeah, because before that it was only you never you'd only see him really from the waist up. Yeah. So Kermit
1: sitting on a log, yeah, but not really like walking around or moving. Yeah. So for
0: the first five or ten minutes of this movie, you got Kermit playing a banjo in a log, seeing his full body. you Got him riding a bike on his own, a two wheeler, and then you got them on stage just dancing around and singing like that. And then they clear out the El Slizo Cafe, and then you have them introduced to Charles Durning, Doc Opa. Hey, little girl, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Doc Opa. You know, and he's so funny. He's like, I gonna have the. What did he say? He's like, Yeah. He's like, oh, that's so. It's terrible. And then he's like, yeah, you're right. I don't have the uh, aptitude for performing like you do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why I need you. Um, and uh, it's another thing is that they they go get a Studebaker. He's he, the, the the car that they're driving in that. Uh, his, and it's amazing the Studebaker trick because you got to think about that. They have to figure out a way to have the the performers. I mean, they're driving a real car around, and they get the old trick of putting a little person in the trunk driving it when there's a camera in the nose of the Studebaker because it's it's the type of Studebaker it is it's one of, I think it's the the Commander it has a it's the bullet model so it has the bullet nose so they put the the camera in there so the the person driving can see where they're going and you can then have the performers then just underneath the dashboard doing the performances to and then it gets to the point where Fozzie needs two people you have Kermit in the car and then you have Miss Piggy. So what is that? Up to four people at yeah. one point. You and know, then you
1: have the, and then the then chicken. You have, you have Gonzo, Gonzo in there later.
0: You have you have Fozzie. or you have Ralph the dog in there. You know, so you have all these people scrunched in there into it's into it like almost a practical car driving around. So and, in, and all those little jokes too. Where it's like, where'd you learn how to drive? He's like, oh, a correspondence course. You know, it's like, yeah. and they back into his Cadillac, my caddy. You know, and then it becomes like uh, I think the idea of being like the um, you know, do you want to? He can he, sh- he can either go to Hollywood and make it the hard way of kind of like, you know, going up the chain and taking his shots and, and trying to m- get an honest way at it or kind of selling out and going against his principles and going and working for Doc Hopper. You know, and, and that's almost a teachable moment there, I guess, for kids where it's like, you know, do you want to take the easy way out and go do something that you're not really necessarily believe in, but you're selling out and making a shitload of money? Or are you going to do it the hard way and work up to it and try to, you know, do it the long way around, you know? Um, And then you get a great song, Moving Right Along, which is one of my favorites of the whole, like, that's the atypical atypical Paul Williams, like, kind of like, you know, floor stomping, like, I love that, like that groove, you know, and then singing, like, you know, you have that whole idea like that. And then, you know, and and even all the lyrics in that are so funny. I love all that, you know, Uh, I I always find the lyrics in all these songs are just so amazing and so awesome. And you go into, and then there they, there's a joke where I always thought it was funny when they're little, when they see the fork in the road and there's an actual fork, He's <laughs> <it's> like, <"Come laughs> and it goes by. And then they, the other joke is they run into, um, big bird and they're like, you know, why don't you come with us? And he's like, um, you want to ride? And he's like, no, I'm, um, what'd you say? I'm, I'm I'm, I'm to New York to, to, make to make it in public in television. television. And, and they're like, okay. You know, I, I also
1: yeah. remember going to see that big bird movie. Oh, like follow that bird or whatever. Yeah. I never that was I remember going to see that at the movies too. And that was where he got lost, right? Something. He leaves Sesame Street for some reason. And he, I thought he was going and around that the becomes world, another road movie.
0: Yeah, and it's because and it, is that also with Rubber Ducky? Remember with the duckies going down the Remember that whole thing with Rubber Ducky going around the world, the little ducky yes, going down I the... I haven't
1: seen it since the theater. <laughs> the last I might have, I probably have seen the Great Muppet Caper and and Muppets Take Manhattan since the theater, but I have not seen that Big Bird movie since the movie theater. Yeah, so I don't really remember it. I just remember going to see it mm. and being like, "Big Bird, like, where's all? Where's Kermit?" <laughs> and, you know, you I'm just sure th- I'm sure. Th- yeah, but I'm sure there's cameos by uh, by everybody else. But I remember being kind of like a little stumped as a kid, being like, "I don't get it. Like, he's supposed to be on Sesame Street or what?" But and the Muppet and Kermit and Fozzie and all those guys are in the movies.
0: But you so it's almost like a sw- bait and switch or. But it word.
1: is a weird kind of connection because it is like that shot. They very well could have put that, the reverse of that shot in.
0: Oh, and have it be like his journey because beginning he there. is just like kind of like walking with a bag, yeah, <laughs> in, in, a, in a like a crowd, you know, like in Iowa or someplace. If, if so, yeah. they didn't do that, which they, they may have. have yeah. They very well could have. And they drive by the 1951 uh, Studebaker Commander, and they. Uh, the, the, at the end of you know, moving right along as they end up at the church, and they meet the you know, and then it's all well, and that's it where they f-
1: get James Brown and, and <laughs> yeah, Lassie sees the light <laughs>
0: exactly. I see the and you get the. <laughs> and you have um, uh, uh, Doctor Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. We all is and be that know it as the Electric Mayhem, and it's all very uh, again. It's all like them breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, it's all them like you know they have the script. They don't look like Presbyterians to me. And then they they hand them the script, and it's funnier later. I, I didn't realize until this viewing that. They hand him the script that says the Muppet movie, and it's green. It's a green um, cover. Then later on, when they catch him in the desert and they pull the script out, they go, oh, We just looked in the script. If you notice, there's all like, they've drawn all over the script now. It's all like, you know, decked out, like in all like psychedelic oh, paint, yeah. you know, pen drawn, because they've had it for a while. So um, uh, we talked about Derning. I think he, he's amazing in this movie, his acting, and just his well, going up to Colonel Sanders kind you know, of a thing. He's. uh and how he's talking, like, Hey, little girl. I mean, right. I don't know
1: if he. Is S- Saturday? If he sleepover movie uh, hall hall of fame material in general,
0: I think. Well, I but mean. I
1: feel like he is definitely Saturday night movie sleepover. <laughs> hall of fame <laughs> for us he should be in there because <laughs> we love him i mean uh he's
0: in i mean come on When a stranger calls stranger
1: calls and but he's also in tootsie which is one of my yeah, favorite movies it's all day afternoon and i mean he's in a crap load of he's th- in the, so the many final b-
0: countdown i mean he's in a whole he's bunch of so movies. many great
1: movies and he's you know he's always great
0: yeah i mean no matter he's in he's in he's on family guy up until his death he was peter griffith's father he was in i mean we've talked about him at length we went in a Dark Knight of the Scarecrow went into his history in war, the service in World War Two, yeah, and, and his boxing, and that he was in the Malmedy massacre, and he, you know, his his actual hand-to-hand combat, and, and the storming of Normandy, and, and, and how, how <laughs> <laughs>
1: and how the most suspe- he's a judo. The most suspenseful thing about uh, when a stranger calls is wondering if he's gonna have a heart attack, <laughs> <laughs> when he's running all around, <laughs> he's running as
0: fast oh as he can. God. You know, it's <laughs> like running full speed. You know, that's, it's funny. We keep taking diversions, and I and I, I, I really – this is one of these podcasts where I really fear what it's going to sound like playing it back because we, we're all just right. all over They're the all world. They're all kind of related, though. Um, I've been watching lately at night Canon. There's there's an old show with, uh, with William Conrad called Canon, and he's the guy who ends up being like Jake and the Fat Man, the Fat Guy, and he's this kind of really heavy actor. And – the shtick of the show is he's short and heavy and they just make him like he's like he's doing all his own stunts. And it almost becomes a joke when you watch the show. Canon, uh, he's a de- it's a detective show of the 70s. So he's yeah. like he's a private eye and he's, you know. So it's so funny that like it seems that like he, when he looks, he's he always looks like he's he, he's always like he's squinting. So it's like the joke my wife and I have is like they just – Flash the key light in his face, <laughs> and he's like, on one take, he's, he's like, what the fuck? He's, his eyes have it, yeah, and he's up. like, and they're they only letting him, and they're shooting the rehearsal, <laughs> and he's like, and then also he's doing all his own stunts, so it's like. Here's a guy that's, you know, he's overweight, God, for bless, God bless him, he's, I don't know, you know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make fun of him or whatever, but he's, and then he's, he, they have, they, they put him against, like, a 16-year-old marathon runner, and this guy's like, he's got to run after him, and they do these long takes where he's running after him, or he's jumping out of cars, he's rolling out of cars, and it's like, you know, is Cannon going to survive this <laughs> week, or is he going to die, you know, William Conrad, you know, uh, back of the Quinn Martin productions, but well, it's just so I funny. Just, I brought up Charles
1: Dion and I watched that. That and we were, we were we were worried. A, we just sleep, brought him up recently, didn't we? At bring a him up. Sleepover. We, we brought watched, that story up. Yeah, but we watched that. I remember we rented that and we watched that in your, ba- your parents' basement. Yeah, where we are tonight.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, we, we and, were uh,
1: we were fearing for Charles' during <laughs> we're his life. Like,
0: Jesus, for Charles, <laughs> He was like, after take. He's running as fast as he can, and like you know, and he was we we, we go in a bit about him in. Um, uh, in the Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, but he, he has a really interesting past yeah. that we talked about. And we'll get back to him. Yeah. yeah, and we and like, whatever other movies he's in. Um,
1: but yeah, he is great in this. Yeah, Definitely.
0: so I mean, I love him as the f- as, as the bad guy of being like that Colonel Sanders, and even how he talks. It's like, hey there, you know, it's all right, <laughs> you know. It's just how he has that like splendid, splendid, you know. Um, so we get, you know, I love Electric Mayhem. Everybody in the the band is I mean, You have all these different again. You had Henson being uh, Doctor Teeth. You know, it's there's so many f- uh, Floyd, who I named my bear after when I was little, off of him. You have um, for Shirley, what's her name? She's in. You know, all, the whole band is amazing. Jan- Janice, 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 Janet. Janice. Uh, Janice. Yeah, Janice.
1: And there was and, um, a <laughs> Zoot Zoot, skipped a groove again. Yeah, there and was an animal, of course. Yeah, but th- there was uh, last season. I watched uh, a show called uh, Ink Master, mm-hmm. and it's like a competition show for tattoo artists. And there was a girl on that show that I was like, if they were ever going to cast Jan as a live person, that they should cast this She always seemed like she was stoned. So like her eyes were always like half closed. sure. She kind of always talked like Janice. Well, I
0: didn't realize that Jerry Nelson, who we just brought up, who uh, a puppeteer, who is then the voice of Emmett and Emmett Otter and all these other people passed away a couple years ago. Yeah. He, him doing floyd in this to me he has a very jerry reed from um smoking the bandit kind of a um a delivery where he's like we got to keep what does he say he's like because uh, they're reading the script and they're like we definitely got to keep uh them away from this hopper dude and he's got a very like it sounds like jerry reed how jerry reed talks in smoking the bandit so i wonder if there's any info in, you know like you know how sometimes they'll take people's sure, yeah. voices or personalities from the time and and kind of Subjugate or put them Over them So so I love the idea That they fall asleep They're wo- they're woken. They walk in They see him And then they're also tied They fall asleep They meet Scooter there And then they're like Let's just look at the script So they start reading You know in, What is it Interior Exterior Swamp Day And even as a kid You learn script nomenclature of how you yeah, read a script yeah. And he's like You know Helicopter shot We see a man playing banjo, And then it's like You know uh, He meets Fozzie Doc Hopper comes on hard They come to a church You know It's, it's like In two sentences They sum up the first half Of the movie yeah. And then they're like Then the idea is like you know if this was a movie which it is they're like we will think of a clever plot device he's like you know and then you have that whole um you know can you picture where they're doing all this psychedelic stuff and it's yeah, a great because they are gonna
1: paint the car so it's not recognizable yeah not they,
0: they paint the the Studebaker these psychedelic colors and it's another great uh song where it, that's another great you know the groove like the you know can you dig it you know like that whole thing and the lyrics and that I love you know uh can you take a picture, add it to the mixture, that whole thing? And at the end, it's like, you know, it ends and you hear, like, wow, wow, wow. And it comes up with what they have. And it's like, Fozzie's like, I don't know how to thank you guys. And Kermit's like, I don't even know why to thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's like, he doesn't know what, they, what they've done. And then, you know, there's all these little jokes. It's like, you know, you know we, we, when you leave, you can, we can, you can, we can, when you become rich and famous, you, we can come find your Hollywood and come exploit your wealth. You know, and you get the Batman spin, you know, when they come out of it, you you get that transition. So they take off, they go to Hollywood, and I think the next scene is where they meet Fozzie, uh, uh, Gonzo, I'm sorry. They meet Gonzo on the road where he's got the plumbing truck with Camilla, Uh the the chicken, and they collide. And um, you have the next sequence where they end up in the car it's one of my favorite sequences of movie history where they're in the car and it's a long shot and they're and he's hopping and they're like why are you hopping He's like because i'm hopping mad and Fozzie's like oh that's funny he's like you should you should come with us and they're like well what are you doing I, I, and he goes well i have a dream i want to you know make it big go to bombay india and make it famous as an actor he <laughs> goes he goes why don't you just come to where we're going hollywood and then uh, Gonza goes Sure if you want to do it the easy way, <laughs> and then there's, a, there's like a thing he's like and there's a, there's a pause that we picked up a weirdo. <laughs> and it's so funny because I, I love that joke, but then in, in, real, in real life, there's a huge film industry yeah, and and which they didn't know at the time that, that Bollywood in Bombay, India was like the place yeah. that you know so it's just such a um, ridiculousness uh, of it. And then, you know, they go to the, the county fair and they meet at the county fair. you get Ed, uh, Piggy uh, Piggy there with Elliot Gould. Who's the uh, playing some sort of weird game with the girls? <laughs> yeah, <balloons. I> <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, it's what was almost like what's that? his face from uh, Creep Show a couple of weeks ago. He was like, yeah, I'll come back tomorrow night. You know, right? I'll see you then. You know, it's like the, he's playing. So then he, he's he's judging the. F- you have uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy there judging the contest. And like we said, he ended up dying before the movie was done. They end up dedicating the movie to him, and. Um, you have uh, Richard
1: Pryor's in that scene as well. You have
0: Bob Hope. I love that. Oh, he,
1: Bob Hope with the ice And cream. that's
0: Bob Hope's, even though Bob Hope didn't pass away for another 20-plus f- years because he ends up passing away around 2000, 2000. I think he died in 2003, Bob Hope um that's his last movie appearance is in that although he had a bunch of tv specials well into the 80s yeah. and 90s uh doing like the christmas specials and stuff but it's and that he even got the funny like where he says something he goes ah <laughs> he gets the joke it's like you know it's like it doesn't like wait right to you know i just met you and then is like ah and it's like it, you know it's just amazing you forget that these are puppets you know and you see like the like even the dance numbers when they're doing like the vaudeville routine of them dancing it's like you think that. This is two different people in an outfit yeah. g- sinking their, you know, their movements and stuff. It's well, just, movie it's, magic, it's, man. It's, it's amazing. You got Richard Pryor here because he sells gons, all the balloons. And then you, um, he ends up floating away. But you have uh, Miss Piggy and she looks, it's the very 70s Miss Piggy before she had her eyes done. And she got some yeah. plastic surgery to, you know, change her cosmetic look. But she has
1: a different look in the 70s. I used to have, and I don't know if I've mentioned it on previous shows or not. But for like my birthday one year, somebody, maybe it was my grandmother or an aunt or something, gave me a piggy bank, but it was a Miss Piggy bank. Oh, wow. And I probably still have it in my mom's house. But you know, it was her, and she was like in this very glamorous pose. And, but the coin slot was in her chest, so it looked like she had this enormous cleavage.
0: And then between the cleavage was the... Uh, <laughs> That's where you would drop the coins. With Jesus, it's very suggestive. <laughs> like in her cleavage. Getting the kid ready for, uh, <laughs> you know, as he gets older. Um, and that, you see her, she wins the the beauty contest, which is hilarious. And, uh, you know, it's in this movie, and it's, I guess it's the Miss Piggy character. I find her so brilliant in so many ways. Frank Oz's portrayal of Miss Piggy, where she's this kind of, you know, working actress, where she has, like, the... Um, real nice. Like, hi. And then, like, when her art agent calls, what are you, Marty? What are you on? What is it? Yeah, yeah. How much is it paying? Take it. <laughs> and she, you know, it's all, like, you know, it's all, like, business. But she sees Kermit, and then it starts that whole sequence of never before, never again. And that's a song William, um, Paul Williams says that he kind of wrote with the idea of having Sinatra to sing it, like never before, and never like around the main event kind of years yeah, for Sinatra. Yeah. But uh, in, in reality, Johnny Mathis ends up recording it. And I don't know if he recorded it prior to the Muppet movie or if he recorded it after the Muppet movie, but Johnny well, Mathis. maybe you
1: should have found that out.
0: Ah, <laughs> Jesus, Blake. Just getting you back. <laughs> okay, getting you back. You got, you got one more on me. That was a good one. Um, see, it's a little slapstick here. But there's this beautiful, uh, amazing sequence where you have these beautiful vignettes of like them running through the field, and they run together, and he hits her, and sh- she keeps going, and he's like, "That's funny." Or you see him under the streetlight as the private detective, and she's walking up to him, very like, you know, uh, Philip Marlowe or yeah, Sam yeah. Spade. Uh, and I think that when I was little, I used to think that was where my Kermit. Um, puppet was from because he was in the trench coat i didn't you know i didn't put two and two together it's the roaming reporter from sesame street because that's how they would get kermit to get on sesame street to kind of have the interaction but you have that big sequence which is funny at the end of that and then um you know they end up going away together and then they have to go get you know Fozzie who's driving or, or or uh gonzo who's floating away you get that funny joke bear right you know bear right left frog yeah, yeah. they knock him down and then they're like you know then they don't like miss piggy they could tell they're all kind of like it's like you know when you have your friends have a girlfriend you're like <laughs> oh this is fucking this girl's with us it's like eh. so they stop for the night and they go to the 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 the, 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 the motel for and you know to stay over and kermit and miss piggy go out for dinner and it's um it's to me it was like little bohemia which is the place where um i think that's the name of the place where uh, Dillinger got caught and shot this big famous shootout where he got in like the really wood panel kind of looking yeah, place yeah. where they meet Ralph the Dog on piano but you have Steve Martin Steve at the Martin time so one you of
1: the funniest scenes in the movie in my personal opinion
0: I, I, yeah, it's me as well so you have in, in the span of five minutes you have Bob Hope one of the you know famous comedic legends of all time you have Richard Pryor another stand up legend a contemporary of that time uh, who's very controversial at the time and then you have five minutes later you have Steve Martin showing up who was doing huge doing stand-up at the time, yeah. you know, uh, showing up doing, and he plays the waiter, and he has so it's it's such hard, a funny
1: routine. I mean, it's hard for people to understand who are younger, probably, maybe even a lot of people our age, but it's like how big, how huge he was as a stand-up. Because we knew him in movies. Steve Martin. Yeah. Yeah. Even prior as well, but Steve Martin in particular. Yeah, but I think, like, we, but I feel like there were, like, you know, we saw Richard Pryor stand-up specials and yeah. stuff when we were little. But was like, I don't remember ever seeing like a Steve Martin stand-up special, at least when I was. A, you know, I didn't. See I think them. we just missed the cups. Yeah, you know, because he was really big in the seventies, so big that he was like the first comic to like sell out Madison Square Garden yeah. and arenas, and that's the that's the reason why he always wore a white suit was so that people in the back. You know, and the nosebleeds could see him on stage. Yeah, because there's a little white dot. Um, <laughs> That's how big the venues he was selling yeah, out. Yeah, but he has a gr- great autobiography called I think it's called My Life Standing Up, uh, which is about his his early years getting into stand up comedy and then his stand up comedy career. Yeah, uh, totally recommend it. Yeah, and
0: he's you're right. I mean he he's funny in this. It, he has a such a obnoxious kind of a. Where he's got these really, really high shorts. And it's so, like, you know, what did he say? He serves, oh, may I. That's one of my favorite lines of the movie. Oh, may I. Or then when they say you can go, he's like, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And
1: he's like, would you like to taste the wine? Yeah, would you like to smell the cap? cap? The the finest of all of Idaho. (laughs) And then. He's like I think he should taste. He think he's supposed to taste it. And she says, "Will you taste it?" He, and he spits t- it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's gross. He's like, "Oh, you picked a good one." <laughs> yeah, like and,
0: and he's like, "Oh, you know," um, and, and it's, just, it's just even that. It's just so funny. All that like the con. It's like that. It's perfect to be that kind of asshole waiter you get, you know, like, you know, like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. So he's so you funny know. in that. Yeah, and um, and the two of them, and then you know she gets pulled. Away, she gets a phone call. She doesn't come back, and then you know she's he's been stood up, and then there's this nice sequence where he meets Ralph the dog. Yeah, it's
1: another great. It's there, another great song. Well, yeah, you get like it's a little, it's a little like bogey. Uh, played again Sam yeah. type thing. Yeah, he's or the praise drinking another another grasshopper another grasshopper for the frog. Yeah, it's also like a quarter to three. Yeah, yeah. it's a saloon song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: he's 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 kind of crooning, you know. Yeah, but I was just like
1: fascinated by Ralph's piano, which is like all covered in like tree but ba- tree like, stumps. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's it's just this whole kind of <laughs> that's why it's almost like a very 70s woodwork kind of a um a feel there and it's a great song the two of them have. And that's another song I remember when I was little. You think about like, you know, like r- them becoming friends, and Ralph like you know, sorry about that. Two, three. Oh, sorry about you know, tadpoles don't have feet. Sorry about that. Two, <laughs> three. F- you know, th- and then th- all these you know, she made a monkey out of old King Kong. I hope something better comes along, and that or even like he's like you know, I uh, I stay away from women. That's my motto. And he's like you know. Uh, What is he? I could go home, have a couple beers, take myself for a walk and go to bed. And there's all like subtle jokes in there. And then, you know, and then that would be the end of the record of side one, you know, (laughs) where it ends where he's like, you know, I never saw a frog that green with the blues that bad. And then that's that you turn the record over to side two. And uh, like I said, I think it's a great duet between the two of them, which is just Jim Henson doing both. Yeah. Um, uh, I should also mention at the end of the Miss Piggy song, it's funny how they pitch uh, you know, when they're getting married, never again, they pitch it like purposely higher that it can go. Yeah, and it's yeah. almost like to me nowadays, like almost uh, f- uh, f- the uh, foreshadowing, like auto tuning, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I mean? now you have all those songs. You just do that naturally. But it's almost a joke in it. Like Frank Oz can't get that high, but they push it that high. So getting back, that you find out, you know, then Kermit gets a call, and it's Doc Hopper's got Miss Piggy, and, and, you know, and you have this great sequence with Mel Brooks in there, where Mel Brooks is playing this crazy, um... Like,
1: German scientist. Yeah, you know. Torture and, guy.
0: You know, where he's like, he has this machine, and he's like, you know, she won't know, know you from Canadian bacon, and, um... And it's 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 funny. His machine, when I was little, was so scary. Yeah. And I was always worried about when he's putting that little yarmulke. he's talking like, about the yarmulke, putting <laughs> yarmulke. So a lot of Jewish jokes in there, even though he's a German. You know, he's a German thing, and he's and even like, what is he? He, he be- bends over when he's like, oh, I think you've had garlic today. He says okay. <laughs> he, says yeah, that he that
1: passes in front of Piggy's. Mouth. Yeah, and he's like, you, so you've had garlic. I see you like garlic. <laughs> 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 it's just, it's
0: just, oh, there's so many of these little which had to be added. Yeah, well, that's like half this movie. Like when they get lost. And they, you know, when he was, like, looking at the map, and they're like, how about we take this blue part? That's a lake. That's Oh, he's like, a river. He's like, oh, sorry. And, and then who's driving? And it's uh, it's all right out of that camera test of them just, yeah. you know, fucking around, ad-libbing, and Frank uh, Oz trying to I make you answer I mean, about another relax. genius. A comedic you know, genius. Mel Brooks. Brooks? Oh, yeah. You Can't know.
1: wait till we dive
0: into the Mel Brooks catalog. <laughs> um, and he's in here, and he's freaking hilarious. Um, you know, uh uh, and then and, and just the whole action then there's turns into an action sequence where she beats up everybody you know oh, and, yeah. and it's great I mean it's so you know she's high kicking she's jumping down and, all, and then when she's done she's like oh you know she's like oh is everything and then she gets that call where she gets the phone call and he's just like Marty what do you want how much is it i'll take it <laughs> and she's like bye and she leaves and he's kind of upset and then what do they 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 then that's the next day they they all leave and they they decide they want to try trade the studebaker in so they go to the the used car lot and you get milton burrow there another comedic legend who was the the pioneering person i think it was texaco the texaco playhouse maybe he his was the first show on tv it was really the first like biggest show ever on television yeah and
1: um he he's a legendary large penis.
0: Yeah, I and that's a... Yeah. That. Well, you, you want to explain to people why we know such a random kind of a... Um,
1: <laughs> well, he used to like to show it to people. Yeah, kick right? <laughs> was.
0: He wanted to show... He had such a very large member that he wanted to show everybody that.
1: And I had another guy that I work
0: with who was a camera guy who worked with him a couple times on the telethon. And he said he wasn't very really like a nice guy. I've heard that, too. But uh, then... Also, at the end of it, near the end of the night, it was one of those things where the guy, you know, Burl, kind of apologized to the guy, because the guy was working a handheld camera, and he was kind of an asshole, like, get that camera out of my face, and he said at the end of it, he was like, I'm sorry, and you know, I didn't mean to be like that, but I've heard he was kind of, you know, he had to be on his good side or whatever, but madman moody he, he's he's hilarious as the uh as the um used car sale. even that scene where they're they're driving and he's like you're taking his turn a little wide, aren't you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like getting in there and they come up and they shouldn't like you know milton burrow's like looking at him like what the fuck and he's like looking up about the car and they, they they end up buying him a wood they, they buy a woody he's like with the 12 dollar trade-in you owe us a nickel and then you meet the guy jack yeah and he's like oh he walks away and then they, they drive away with the um in the woody and then they go on their way and um then he, you start that thing where Jack's trying to run after him.
1: I felt so bad for.
0: Oh, you know what? I'm getting my stuff mixed up because that's before they meet Miss Piggy, because they the next scene is the county fair, and, and remember the Woody's parked there because after they leave, Jack runs. Remember he all the women run out of the tent. And he's like, "Oh, I just gotta uh, boy, yeah. I gotta really just catch up with those guys," you know. We apologize. Yeah, we're all it's out, a we're late uh, night. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing my voice. We're all out of sorts, um, and. Um, it's just, you know, you get into these trick shots again with the Studebaker where they need three Studebakers. They need lo- they need one that can drive in a long shot. They need one that can be driven from the back. Uh, and that, that Studebaker, I guess there's a Studebaker museum that this, they, this one of these Studebakers is, I- I- in the Studebaker museum, they have one of the Studebakers from this movie that they um, ended up using. And it's just such complicated. You think about the stuff, the logistics of being, you know, uh, in real sets, and I guess they said that when they designed these sets, they uh, they designed them so that they were they were in sections. They can remove certain sections when they needed to, because you got to think about they're putting these, they're hiding the the puppeteer or the the sure. you know, the, uh, the performer behind all this stuff. And the director said that there that he had some conflicts on set. And you talked to that guy uh, Austin um, Peddleton, I think his name is, yeah. who played Max, and he says it wasn't a very happy set, and I think it was because um frawley the director wasn't used to how you know i guess you got to think about every shot you're doing in this is a special effects shot i mean anytime you're doing you're lining a shot up in the movie it's a special effects shot and it's also that they're doing all their special effects uh there's no post done they're all doing it not in camera but it's all yeah effect in the frame
1: yeah other than the Blue screen stuff. Yeah, so but I mean, for the you know 99 percent of the whole movie is in camera, right within the frame. So you think of how
0: a logistical nightmare of you know you're framing your shot, or you're trying to get your your uh, your coverage, or even your your blocking in the scene, and you're realizing. So I guess it was. Kind of a learning learning curve for him, and it was something he wasn't used to, so I think it was a little stressful, and that might be the reason why after this movie they never really hired outside a house again. Yeah, uh, I think it's Frank Oz. Is Frank Oz the director? Is it no? I think
1: Jim directs. Uh, Henson directs Caper, and but it's just Oz like the two of them
0: direct from then on, kind uh, of Muppet Take Manhattan.
1: Yeah, uh, you also have to take into account that you know clearly Henson had a, b- a very clear vision of what he wanted the movie to be and what he wanted to achieve with it. Yeah. And that's a tough. That's putting an outside director in a really tough shoes,
0: especially someone that they've just they, they brought in. It wasn't like yeah, you know, it's not like he's giving it to Frank Oz, who's worked with him for twenty years or whatever. Yeah, you know, already to bring in to
1: someone who hasn't worked with them before. It's, it's, I, can, I have I can have sympathy for uh, him. Sure, you know, like I, we don't know the the what really happened and or, or how unhappy the set was, but I could imagine that there was tension because you know a, and Jim is and uh, Jim Henson was a v- was hugely successful by that point yeah. too so so you, so
0: you can't really question his yeah
1: so i mean not talking about like not talking about like could be, like egos clashing but that you know he has a lot of clout and he has a and he has a very specific vision and then to be asked to helm a project where you have the creative mind on set every day <laughs> that, that kind of created this idea and created all these characters I would imagine it was not an easy job to direct that movie
0: especially if you think about you know Frank Oz is kind of a director at this point too I mean you have people who are you know you almost feel like you're over, underwater be coming in as this director and then you're having people around you who you're you're working with an established troupe who've been working together for over a decade yeah. maybe 20 years and, and then you're the outsider in, yeah and you're the one who's supposed to be trying to say direct them or as a maybe you're just a, almost like a placeholder more, just yeah. fill in those just shoes. Just to watch the
1: monitors, really. Yeah,
0: and make sure everything looks good and, like, let's do another one for safety. Um, you know, and it's just – I guess that's the reason why then they don't ever outsource and they don't ever, you know – use somebody else again uh there are extended takes in a lot of this, in some of these sequences there's an extended take in el sleazo cafe and there's some extended takes of when doc hopper's driving around and he's like we're looking you know if you see a tan studebaker he's like oh i see is a rainbow colored studebaker and they park in front of that uh that b- uh, billboard perfectly and then they go by and then they say the myth myth and then carol king comes out again yes and they're like they look again it's like it's like the harry krishna joke it's yeah, like good oh, it's yeah, yeah. a running gag like with the. There's these scenes where it's, it's so meta. where well, they'll break the fourth wall. They'll talk to you. They'll look over to you, or they'll or they'll pull the script out. You know, yeah. and it's interesting for it's challenging a young mind at that point to understand the the subtleties of gags, the subtleties of reoccurring jokes, the subtleties of the setups and the payoffs. The Vaudeville esque relationships of these routines, the banter between the two of them, where there's a lot of jokes that are under, like I said, that are under the breath, where it's like you're taking this turn a little wide, aren't you, Fozzy? Or this
1: or that. So it's I can imagine that being in post though.
0: Yeah, all, all just them ADR and stuff. Where yeah, they're, you know, because
1: yeah, like you know, whoever, however they're taking, it, they could have just yeah you know, the little person in the trunk could have just taken that turn yeah, really Yeah, because he's, he's, he's making sure, <laughs> you, know, you know. It's a big car, and you, can, and you can just imagine them, like, ADRing and just ad-libbing that line for that shot.
0: Sure. Um, there were two Studebakers they used. One was a, a, a regular one, and the other one was that they had to, um, you know, like I said, a hybrid that they can have the guy driving in the back. Um, and... Um, then you start getting into, like we talked about this year, the, the Western. You get the Western tropes because near the end of it, it becomes this Western kind of an epic where they get into the desert. Um, they pick up Miss Piggy again, and, and you know, and uh, she's waiting out in the road. They pick her up. They're all a little mad at her. They have the imitation Woody they bought at this point. Uh, and I'm sorry. It's a real Woody station yeah. wagon, not an imitation. And that conks out, and they're stuck in the desert. And that's always, I thought, was a beautiful shot where it comes in the frame, and then they keep it there. They get out, the car kind of just dies, much like um, the Bluesmobile. Yeah. You know, and then you have that time lapse shot. I always love that where it comes, uh, suddenly it's night and they're out in the campfire. And you get to, it's the point, and maybe it's, you can call that the end of your second act where Kermit's a little like despondent. People don't know what to do. He goes off to himself, and as a kid, I never really understood. He starts talking to himself, and then another Kermit shows up. Yeah, and I guess it's supposed to be him talking to himself. And I never really fully got the idea of oh, you know, is it who is that another Kermit coming to visit, or what's you know <laughs> yeah, what's yeah. what's going on? But he's he's trying to reason and you know give himself a pep talk, and then you have that really nice he's feeling
1: guilty. Yeah, I mean, I, as a viewer, You're I like, don't feel like he needs to.
0: Well, I feel like he 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 feels like he got all these people. I guess he felt like he was. L- giving these people false hopes you oh, know
1: but i'm with his alter ego yeah or so it's, it's like, like they like
0: punch their ticket you know they're mm-hmm. with you you know um i'm a big jack benny fan and i you know like i said I, in the past i see a lot of jack benny and kermit's kind of idea of him especially in the muppet show of him kind of setting up the world controlling and being the straight man to be everyone spinning jokes off around him and you know you get him trying to hear it, trying to hold it together not knowing what to do um you have that really nice song gonzo sings um we, you know we'll, we'll maybe uh we're going back there we're going to go back there someday and that's something i guess that was one of jim Hansen's most favorite songs so they end up performing that at the funeral or at his memorial they sing a rendition of that which is really sad and um they even they even had like a uh they had to figure out a way to have a a, a shooting star go over I guess in the sky, so they just took a like a Christmas tree light and put it on a wire and just flew it across. Something yeah. as simple as that, and then all of a sudden, while Kermit's, you know, Gonzo does this really nice song with Fozzie playing the harmonica in the background, and then at the end of that, when Kermit's out talking to himself, he hears this jam band. He's like, "What the fuck?" And he's hearing like an instrumental version of "Can You Picture That?" And he runs back, and it's the Doctor Teeth and the Electric Mayhem are there with the with the road bus, and you know, and that's it's like with with. Uh, with Scooter he's like is he the man with the plan he's like no he's the man with the van like they can't get around without him you know they have yeah, to have him yeah. so he's got the bus and then it's like you know how did you guys find us he's like oh we just looked at the script you know and uh what is it
1: an uh, exterior desert night you know that's they knew where to find him and then I did have glasses from like McDonald's or Burger King that must have been that must have gotten from my brother get
0: like, glass like, like you yeah. drink
1: out of glasses that you would get at fast food places back then. We had Muppet movie once. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember my favorite one was, like, the bus because you could, like, as you as you it turn turned, the glass, was, yeah. you could see all the windows and see them all in there.
0: Yeah, it's it's like a psychedelic bus. It's like a short, old, fat. It's much like the bus from uh, Trick or Treat. Yeah. You know, and um, whatever that GMC was, and, and they decked it all out psychedelically. And it's funny that the, then... So they all get in the bus, they're driving, and then you get the motorcycle cop behind them, and that's another my other favorite scene in the movie that's hilarious where it's like, you know whisper sweet nothings in my ear and she's like motorcycle cop he's like that's a sweet nothing No motorcycle (laughs) cop is chasing us they pull over and then you get the kind of the 60s counterculture where you see this cop walking up and they're like and um dr teeth you know he's like it's the man with the bads, the police the cops the fuzz the p.i and then Miss P gets up, like, you know, don't you – she's like, don't you dare. He's like, I wouldn't think of it, you know. Yeah. And then he gets on. It's Max kind of warn him. And then, you know, you, uh, Doc Hopper's got this whole band of marauders together to try to get um, uh, Kermit. And I always was disappointed that when they have the frog killer they brought in, whatever his name is, I, I wish they had somebody famous like, you know, Charlie Bronson or Eastwood play that cameo. Because sure, yeah. I don't – I recognize that guy when we were watching, but I can't place his face – but maybe just because how they have him looking like a long Chaney kind of, like kind of crazy-looking. You, you kind
1: of expect there's so many cameos in the movie. Yeah, you think that, he, that then would you'd be... you'd expect that that would be somebody.
0: Like, have it be somebody evil, like or a bad... Like Vincent Price. Even or, James
1: Colburn could have played it.
0: Yeah, you could have had James Colburn in there. Or Albert Finney that we misplaced. Or, you know. <laughs> they got
1: lost in the you know, shovel.
0: Even one. they say uh, Melinda Dillon's supposed to be in here somewhere, who we know from Slapshot and uh, Christmas Story. And I can't figure out where she's in this movie either. So if anybody knows out there in radio land where Melinda Dillon is, please well, let us know. James
1: Frawley, the director, is also in this movie.
0: Yes, yeah, he one of. Well, I mean, he's, you have...
1: He's, he's, he's billed as a waiter, but I'm
0: guessing... In the... Well, I... When knowing Frank Oz is in this movie, and you look, you could see Frank Oz because when they're in the El Slizo Cafe, he's dressed like an extra from Cruising, and he's got, like, they put Tanner's skin on him, and he's the one that picks up Kermit and throws him. He goes waka and throws Kermit. He's got the big micro- motorcycle yes. leather on with the motorcycle. That's Frank Oz, and they throw him into the fan. Wah, wah, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, so he warns him, and then he's like, you know, they get to that desert town, and then it, it, it suddenly turns into the iconic American Western world. Yeah, I know. They go in there, and you see, which is th- like,
1: you know inexplicably beaker and <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hilarious and then, and then the beaker
0: you get beaker and and bunsen honeydew from the muppet show and those are beaker somewhat of the funniest
1: that's it a- <laughs> but it's like what are these guys doing in like an old abandoned western town and
0: they're doing what are they they're like they're working on their 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 ingenious yeah. th- 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 then it's like useless inventions that they're gonna figure things out and what does he say to him? he's like what in fat what in the world of fatswala is this you know and it's like grow it's like make prunes big pills or something like that he's like it only doesn't it work anything big and um and they're a throwback from the Muppet show, which is great to have them in there because there's always those great uh skits in the Muppet show where bunsen's doing something shitty and then beaker gets messed up by it or you know i remember one where he gets really huge and big and he's like walking over he's like a couple stories tall walking over like um you know the set or the road or whatever like that uh it was always some sort of terrible catastrophe of whatever bunsen was doing beaker would be the experiment and end up getting killed by it so it ends up that then doc hopper shows up with everybody and you have this big you know. Kermit comes out, and he's got the cowboy boots on. It's very Western iconic, and he's there. And he tries to reason with Doc Hopper. And all my life, I've always thought that I thought Doc Hopper would have a change of heart. Where he's like, I got plenty of friends. Max man. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, you thought that he... I always thought that right there, Doc Hopper would come around, but he doesn't. He's like, kill him. Well,
1: apparently, Jim Henson really wanted him that was well i see jim henson's logic there yeah you know then, not, i mean
0: i guess i don't know i mean what do you think do you think it's a good it was, choice they but don't then
1: it was frank oz that was like no fuck that
0: yeah he's like they shouldn't be you know they should, no he shouldn't have this he should be a complete asshole i mean do you have any thoughts on it does it matter to you or do you think it would it be disingenuous if he did s- see the error of his ways suddenly out of nowhere
1: i don't know i it, it certainly played up but he's going to yeah, because then it's like I got plenty of fr- ca- kind of the surprise <laughs> that he doesn't.
0: I guess then maybe that is I a mean, switch of the think it's playing it that way? Yeah. He's I mean, like, it he t- like he if takes if his hat off. He's like,
1: mm, so well then, kill, kill him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Everybody loves a mailman. Oh, that's the back <laughs> to Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. <laughs> Everybody loves a mailman, little girl. Going the over there.
1: But uh, that's for I you, Mike Vanderbilt. <laughs> I the. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I it, it ultimately, it doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. But, but I guess if he doesn't, I don't know. Ultimately, like narratively, nothing really would change. No, because yeah, I wonder what would happen. Would it would if he had a change of heart? Would they need animal to grow? Well,
0: would would maybe you get the point where he tries to stop the men, but the men are so gung ho. It's almost like the, one of those, um, like you know, like a uh, what do you call that? Like a posse going out mm-hmm. of hand. You know. So then you have yeah, then you have. Animal growing, and I don't think we've talked enough about animal. But animals is great, you know. Uh,
1: Voiced by Frank Oz.
0: Yeah, another one of these people. Ha ha ha! Or these different like um, hilarious little things he has. The, the little corpse
1: and Oz quarks, and, and Frank Oz always talks about how, like, you know, he with all the all the characters that he played, he always he always tried to make them three dimensional. But it was fun to play Animal because Animal was like two-dimensional or even one-dimensional. Like he was just... Sex, drugs, <laughs> and rock and roll or something really yeah. yeah. Mayhem,
0: breaking, you know. I mean, even... Well, I haven't brought up yet, but one of my f- favorite movies of all time is that Muppet Christmas special, which I think it's called the very... Mu- I don't even know the name of it. Just I, before Henson died, right? Yeah, it's like 87. And I would love to cover that on here, but then at the same time, it's like, I don't know what else can we talk about because we're talking about everything now. Yeah. Maybe we could talk about the career then, but uh it's a christmas special that was aired on tv where the muppets show up to Fozzie's mother's house and then sesame street shows up Faggle Rock, all the properties show up and have a big christmas and they all start singing christmas songs so it's but it's funny because in that where it's like the while they're all there there's a big snowstorm and miss piggy's trying to make it from the city to get there in time to beat the snowstorm so there's a scene where the phone rings and um Animal picks it up, he's like, ah ha, and he's like, yeah and then you hear like, oh, Kermy, Kirby. He's like, ah, pig. And he just throws the phone <laughs> down and he like walks away. So like Animal's really funny how he has just those one offs, where he's like, where they're like, down, animal, down, shit, back, down. He's like, oh, you know, it's just down. It's it's very funny. But he grows, he eats the stuff, he comes out, and it's just always this monumental ending where the ground's shaking. And I guess they said they wanted to try to first do it. There was a little argument there where I guess was it Frawley? Yeah. Wanted to try to do it like a, like a more of like a map miniature. painting miniature. And Henson's like, no, I want to build, so they bu- built a 60 foot big actual animal. And you think about the, the, ge- the, 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 the actual uh, innards and the actual logistics of trying to, especially they have an over the shoulder shot. Of well, I was just
1: thinking like, where do you get like the strands of animal hair to be, to make it look that like thick it, to, and know? to make it
0: look like replicate the hair on his head.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and so you have that shot of it, ah, and then they all run, and then that's the end, kind of the end of it. They get to Hollywood, and then you have the great, uh, from, in my opinion, g- g- uh, gorgeous, and, you know, in her early years, Caloris Leachman, uh, also a uh, Mel Brooks kind of troupe. Yeah. She's the secretary who's got the um, – uh, she has the, the animal allergy, and she won't let him in to see – what's his name? And the, the legendary uh, Orson Welles playing um, – What's Orson Welles' name in this? Because it's a pun on
1: Less Lord. What's the Well, L-
0: L- Sir Lou Grade. He's a Sir uh, Lou Grade is his name. So Les Lord is a, is a pun on uh, Lou Grade, who took took on this role as this immense producer,
1: uh, and, and
0: then the guy who obviously we
1: talked about earlier, who was the guy that took a chance on them for the Muppet Show. Yeah,
0: who ends up doing ends up going on to do Raise the Titanic in 1980, which we covered on this podcast that ended up flopping, but. You have this great. They 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 open the door and they walk in and you turn around. And it is the Orson Welles, the Unicron, <laughs> you know <laughs> Orson Welles, and he's only got one line with the big cigar, and it's like, and that's always been the best thing in the world. He's like, I'm here, and then it's like he looks at him and he's oh, from all my friends, and he's. And he and he's like, you know, what is he says to his secretary, prepare the standard rich and famous contracts. And isn't that all we want in life? Is this <laughs> is just the standard rich and famous well, contracts.
1: That's pause of suspense.
0: Yeah, where you don't know if he's gonna do it for him or whatever, and it's just like, you know and it's such a great you know, it's it's another cameo, but it's such a great apropos cameo for us and wells, a guy from the Mercury Theater and all this kind of stuff and his history with film and radio and all mm. that.
1: I also thought it was kind of interesting to watch it now and see like what circa 1979 like a luxurious studio head. Office was like what they thought was yeah. <laughs> like really over the top, like luxurious for an offer.
0: Like, yeah, it's almost like the. You, you go, it doesn't
1: seem like that luxurious now when yeah. you look at it. Well, it's like,
0: not shades of like when we did the Towering Inferno when you had um Irwin Allen like like that was that crazy seventies <laughs> you know that, all those yeah, set yeah, designs yeah. of in the Towering Inferno and you know that's something we should mention too these these this was commonplace where you had like a mad 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 world, you had tons of comedies in the 50s, 60s, and 70s which just had like a whole bunch of actors guesting and then into the 70s when you had these uh, Irwin Allen disaster movies or the airplane uh, airport movies or the spoof airplane where you would have everybody and their mother show up in these movies. So this kind of lends itself to that but a lot of these people they were getting were already guests on the Muppet show so it wasn't that much of a leap to call them up saying, hey, you know, this is the end thing right now is whoever you know, was around, they could have them be a cameo, and there were a lot of people they planned to have in the movie that then couldn't do it because of maybe uh, suddenly something would come up in their schedule, so they had to quickly rewrite them out, their cameo, and then write somebody else new into their cameo in, so there was a lot of logistics here. Then at the end of the movie, you have this really interesting kind of sum up where it's the, um, you know, they're, they're getting ready, it's the finale, and they're getting ready, to 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 do the movie and then you or do the production and he's the director they're getting everything ready and it's you see all elements from the entire movie I was I was always fascinated as a kid where you see like them carrying the Studebaker you know prop yeah. or the bus or the you know alls like flats yeah it's, yeah exactly all but then and then when they get everything you know and, and like the jokes like you know miss Piggy, you look beautiful hollywood talk you know <laughs> or the the really inside joke for for people who are in the know where uh Ralph's like all right everybody stay in focus you know you know it's like you know and then finally when it starts action and then you know it's it's beautiful how they start off on the on the ceiling and they come down the lights and everything you could see is awkward looking but then when they get the camera into the shot position it all looks right you know and then they start dollying with him and then he starts singing you know why are there so many the finales you know rain then everybody starts taking turns saying a line or two and then there's a, you know, I think, what is it, uh, Gonzo's flying away, knocks the, the, the and this, this is where I always kind of lost it when I was little, where Gonzo knocks the rainbow, and then stuff just kind of falls out of, and everything falls apart, and there's a disaster, and there's an explosion, and everything breaks, and there's, when I was really little, when they would explode into the ceiling, I thought they exploded through into Orson Welles' office. I thought his office was up there, so I thought they were like worried that like they were gonna get the wrath of Orson Welles. Like, what are you doing? You're blowing everything up. But then instead, you have the, you know, it's like almost the forgivingness like of the, the sky. Yeah. yeah, the rainbow comes down. And it's almost, and then you have that beautiful finale, which is like for me the words that I've all my life. You know, like life's like a movie. Write your own ending. Keep on dreaming. Keep on guessing. We. Look out what, you know, we are out to do for the lovers, the dreamers. Like that whole ending, it's so, that song is like, it starts when we're kids, being show-offs at school, you know, making faces of friends, you're a clown and you're a fool. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's like, you know, doing pratfalls and falls and game. And it's kind of like, you know, how people start off, you're a show-off or whatever, and then you, you find your talent. And then when you get older, people start you know applauding you for the doing the, whatever your niche is you yeah, know and so I, I like all that until the end where it's like it ends and then it's like how do you end it where it comes back and like we said we, were, we alluded to earlier they have this shot of every Muppet they've ever made 250 Muppets in this pit and they had like who did we say we
1: said um What's his face from John um, Landis? John Landis Timber is there, Tim
0: Burton's supposedly They're all they also just
1: like called like the Puppet um, Society of America or whatever, and just like <laughs> shit, busting some puppeteers. Yeah, they
0: needed. They needed. They really needed something to needed fill it like, out.
1: Something like five, like 150 puppeteers <laughs> to man 250 puppets. Yeah, they, every
0: puppet they've ever, I think, had ever they, they up till that point. Yeah, you know. and they. Do this beautiful shot. They pull out, and you know, and then it's then you have Jack bust through the, fil- you know. Oh, I knew I'd catch up with you guys. And then it cuts to the credits, and it's one of these very funny credits with their shit going on during the credits. They're and back on the
1: screening, yeah, room. and they're
0: doing some crazy shit, and they're thanking each other, you know, like that. And then you know, it's still going, and this, and all that kind of a thing. And then like you even get to the animals, like go home <laughs> because it's, like, it's <laughs> like the end of the credits. So um, you know, the movie comes out, and it does oh, it does very well, you know, and it, and I and it, gangbusters, it, it does gangbusters, and people. They love the feel of it. I mean, people compare it to, um, L. Frank Bond, who we did earlier this year, Bonn who was, um, uh, um, Wizard of Oz. They compare it to Lewis Carroll, the Westerns, uh, Crosby and Hope, those, uh, row two movies that Blake and I sometimes, uh, re- refer to even Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney movies. And it was so, it's been lauded as such a classic that in 2009, it was entered into the Library of Congress, um. The Best Original Song, Rainbow Connection, was nominated. Best uh, Adapted Score was nominated. Uh, they won for uh, they won a Grammy for Best best Album for Children, Paul Williams and Jim Henson. And then they won a Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film. And this does a crap load of money, does really, really well. And then that's why I think they end up... Um, stopping doing The Muppet Show because they want to do more movies. Yeah. And they go on to do The Muppet Caper. They do Dark Crystal around this time. They have a guy here doing rewrites for this movie because at the last minute they have to keep doing rewrites for these cameos who are being dropped or put in. And they like his rewrites, so they end up using him to be the writer for uh, The the Dark Crystal, you know. And there's some other things in there, too. Um, some of the conceptual guys that we talked about in Labyrinth that they use in Dark Crystal get some work here, so... Um, <laughs> you know i think we've, we we cover this as best as we can but it's amazing you think about all uh, again nowadays where it's like you think about everything's all cgi yeah. and computer graphics and this is all practical they're doing it in front of you, either in real cars or in, in, you know, walking, like they said the logistics of, at the end of that the scene, when they walk into Orson Welles' office, it looks like they're just walking in, but it's just guys on dollies on their backs, rolling in, making it look like they're, yeah, you yeah. know, all these different puppeteers and stuff, it's just, you think about the innards of all this stuff, and even the idea of these actors having to interact with the puppet, you know, and they used to say too, uh, for the Muppet show, was like, they don't care how famous you were, if you weren't able to interact or work with the puppet that didn't they didn't they wouldn't use you then yeah you know so that was but then also a lot of people would say you know in five minutes you'd get used to working with the puppet and then you'd stop talking to the to the puppeteer you'd be just talking to the the puppet on his hand which uh i find really amazing um so i know we've been all over the place we try to do our best do a little sum up of the sesame street um uh, show because it was the 50th anniversary now. And this being the 40th anniversary of the Muppet movie, uh, we try to do a hodgepodge of, of everything really there. But, um, you know, uh, we've been around the, the, the houses a bit.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I have to say, like I said, this was not a movie that I grew up with. Yeah. I probably didn't see it in its entirety until I was in my twenties. But, uh, I have to say it's a gem, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you watch it now. It's enjoyable. Uh, it's a it's a marvel to watch when you think about all the stuff that the, the just been talking about, the logistics of doing everything in front of the camera. Because I don't think
0: you you have that anymore. I don't really don't think, you know. It's like
1: it would be a novelty. Yeah, yeah. If they did it again, it would be something. like I'm sure the Henson Company, you know, they're still doing stuff, but you know, in general, no. You know, it's a shame. It's a you know, it was <laughs> it, it was an art that never got totally mainstream in the 20th century other than Jim Henson. Yeah. Or, you know... There were spinoffs. To, to a certain extent of, like, like, we said Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop and Mr. Rogers. and But, you know, for the most part, you yeah. know, he, Jim Henson and his crew kind of reinvented puppetry for
0: you have mr rogers a little bit too doing when they go to land of make believe yeah you know you have the with, with uh, king friday and all that kind of i mean it's it's i think the the interesting thing about the progression of the children's like we tried to set up at the start of this with the idea of the puppets and how puppets were used and then the mainstream of talking to the kid or, or trying to sell a kid a toy or trying to realize you know the marketization of it you know of what they want to do and what they wouldn't want to do you know uh Jim Henson getting into fights with people because they wanted Henson or or Sesame Street to sell a gun or something, and they're like, no, we're not going to sell, you know, uh, him being, having the command over exactly what uh, stuff they would endorse and what they would market and what they would, because everyone comes out of the woodwork trying to sell them. We'll make you sheets, we'll make you... Backpacks. We'll make your cups. We'll make your food. We'll yeah. make your toys. What Every every, and that's where he made. Hence, he made his money. So, as as much of a you know of a um, soft spoken, kind hearted person he was, like you said, he was a savvy businessman. He was a genius. Not only was a ge- was he a genius with his ideas of of revolutionizing the way you see puppets in front of the screen, but he also was a genius in how he was able to um, make money off of that. You yeah. know, and he and he's the idea of getting the pro, the Prometheum arch, getting rid of that, and using your camera or the camera frame as being that. Yeah. Why do we have to hide behind something? We can just be below the frame and just stand there and just do you know. And that was people like whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know. And it's amazing to just think of the people who were still using marionettes at the time, or still so, I mean, we didn't even bring up Jerry Anderson and the, their marionette vision of the '60s of the Thunderbirds, and, sure. you know, and that stuff is amazing. The you know. It, um, the stuff that they built for the Thunderbirds and the Thunderbirds. That was right up my alley, Johnny Questish shows of, you know, I, I, I love all those shows and that kind of a thing. And uh, I think they even did a play on Broadway where they, they did it in the style of that. So they all walk around like, you know, they walk around like a marionette, yeah, you know, like yeah. that kind of a thing. And then you see that spoof later in, what is that, uh, Team America? You know, that yeah. you see the... the, the, the um, The South Park guys really lambasting that, the Thunderbirds kind of a thing. So you do see the different spectrums where, you know, that's what they're doing in England. They're doing the Jerry Andersons, doing the Thunderbirds, or there was other iterations of that as well before Thunderbirds. But in America, we had Jim Henson pioneering it, or you had her doing Lamb Chop, or you had on public television, you had... um, uh, uh, Fred Rogers doing something his, his were very elementary where he's just putting in he's just having it be like a solid head that he's bobbing yeah you know not not a, uh, I don't recall like you have the little little tiger cat or King Friday I don't even think they have art, you know they're you not know, articulated I don't faces think so, no it's just almost just like a head that they're just like meow 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 meow, <laughs> meow you know meow meow you know that kind of yeah. a thing where King correct as usual King Friday you know so that's I find all that fascinating all that kind of a stuff you know that all this stuff or howdy doody and all this stuff where we getting back to the um kukla and fran and ollie those those guys and all just the the idea of all this stuff being used in such a way even to charlie mccarthy i brought i, I dug it out of my parents closet in my attic and i brought the charlie mccarthy in the box to 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 my apartment and it's in my closet because my wife refuses to let me have it out <laughs> because it's so freaky looking because it's, it's life-size in a sense you know but yeah, you know yeah. so uh, what i what i used to do is i'd have it out for a little
1: while and then i would go to work and move it
0: <laughs> and hide it someplace <laughs> in the apartment they just freak her out because uh, you know just well, like that it.
1: james wan movie a dead silence yeah great one? movie
0: with mark Wahlberg right yeah yeah, yeah i really enjoyed that uh, i saw the ending coming but it's such a great that's a great that fell through the cracks there I love all those little, and then you even have like the dummy. You know, we could talk about the Twilight Zone dummies. So oh, yeah. a couple legendary skits. Even Goosebumps had one. You know, we were just talking all that with the anthology last month. You know, so um, good fodder there. So you know that is this movie. Yeah, it was absolutely huge for me um, growing up, and is probably the reason why I took this route to try to become rich and famous, and and you know entertain people and. For Blake and I, wanting to make movies, me wanting to make movies with Blake, we're still trying to realize those dreams. But one <laughs> day, Blake, one day, one day, you know, we'll just take all these side tracks of writing books and doing podcasts, and and you working as an editor, me working in television news as a audio guy. It'll all come around
1: when <laughs> we're fifty fair. years Every, old. Everything will come together. Yeah, yeah,
0: we'll we'll, we'll get our we'll get our uh, you know our um, our chance at everything. So um, next week, in two weeks when we do our next episode we're uh celebrating thanksgiving yeah we'll be giving thanks to the giving of thanksgiving we're gonna make
1: a big turkey dinner
0: uh, and it's gonna be autumn we're gonna be in full full autumn mode like we are now it's
1: gonna be autumn
0: and uh, autumn. And, uh oh we're gonna start singing again <laughs> <laughs> oh gingy um we you know we were on a groove of the sequels all this summer which i can't even remember when they started you know, and then we went right into our October extravaganzas. Then we had these four anthology movies. Now we did this one with, with the Muppet movie, which yeah. is kind of doing like a family-friendly. It was a palate cleanser. Yeah, exactly, before the, the getting to the, to the dessert of, of late 2019. <laughs> um, and then next week we have something that's going to be fun, which is uh, something that I think is going to be a surprise to everybody. It's not uh, to me. Not to me either. <laughs> uh but it's gonna be fun and I think it's gonna g- I, I think we decided it does kind of go with the season a bit, you know, and uh yes. w- and then we're we're not teasing a Thanksgiving ish movie because we already did uh trains train trains trains and trains. Planes, trains and automobiles, <laughs> and we've also did Dutch, Dutch. You know, um so it's it is of the Thanksgiving era. Both road movies. Both road movies as well, and I think we've done other road movies, haven't we? Well Cannonball
1: well, I mean yeah, uh, Smokey and the Bandit and the Bandit we, oh, haven't do cannonball. Cannonball. we haven't done Cannonball We yeah, have Cannonball <laughs> uh,
0: And then it tr- Maybe even Transformers The movie's kind of A, a road movie Because they have to get away And get back to To, 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 to Cybertron <laughs> You know that's kind of And they go to the Planet of the Junk You know uh, What other road movies Have we done I, I don't know Blues Brothers We did Bru- Blues Brothers is a road movie Holy shit What else have we done We didn't Haven't we done Space Travel We've done Space Travel movie Time Travel Time travel movies?
1: Well, we did. Back,
0: Back to the, the future? future is that a road movie?
1: So we. So anyway, well, but, you don't need. Where they're going? Dion. Yeah, where we're going, we don't need roads.
0: <laughs> don't need roads. So um, <laughs> we're, we're we're running out of gas here. So we have a real fun thing coming up next week for us. So that'll be really exciting. Um, we hope you like it. And then we're into Dion's favorite time of the year. We are Christmas, 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 Christmas. Um, and then we're resetting for 2020. I'm Hugh Downs, and I'm Barbara Waters, and this is 2020. <laughs> and I'm Charles Danny. And, uh, and I'm Charles Danny. And I'm Doc Hopper. And I'm Doc Hopper. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, so we'd like to thank CLNS Media. We'd give them a shout out. Yes. Uh, thank them. Go check us out there. Check CLNS Media out for all the good things they do over there. Uh, we'd like to always tell us to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, Go to our site, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. You can find all extras usually. Uh, we'd like to ask if anybody actually, you know, um, aside from our friend Jose, our New York <laughs> friend, do anybody check out take a query? Do people look at those extras? Is it worth all the squeeze of the juice for us to put all this extra stuff up? Um, let us know if, if it's worth our while. Should we maybe just drop going forward in 2020 doing stuff with extras? So we'd like to maybe poll you guys and see if you guys actually go over if our listeners care to – Venture and see the after no. reading stuff we do. Um,
1: I mean, not that we want to ruin Jose's fun. No, <laughs> no, we, we love Jose. You know,
0: we love having Jose do stuff like that. So, um, but we're just curious if, like, you know, if if it's something that we should be able that we should keep on doing. And then um, we have some great plans for 2020. Yeah, we have some great plans for Christmas time.
1: And Dion Bayer has a
0: book. I do, Blood in the Streets. You can get it paperback, ebook, uh, audiobook. If you like 70s cop movies, if you like thrillers, historical fictions, detective novels, go check that out. You get it on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books, wherever books are sold. Um, Blake, you have a book out too. I have
1: a book called Score to Death Conversations with some of Horace Grace Composers, available in paperback ebook and for a small fee i'd be happy to read it to you (laughs) really that's so awesome (laughs) chapter i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, (laughs) i'm gonna do that right now (laughs) chapter one (laughs) but uh the book is available on amazon uh from other book retailers or from me directly at score to death.com uh so back uh episodes of score to death the podcast are still available hopefully hopefully to get back to doing score to death the podcast in 2020 Uh, But in the meantime, you can also hear me at uh, Cuts from the Crypt from the Damn Fine Network, where I uh, play horror movie music to my heart's content. That's great. Uh, Last episode, most recent episode, has a special guest uh, of Patrick Bromley from F This Movie. And hopefully uh, in 2020, if I continue doing that show I will bring in other special guest programmers. Nice. That's beautiful, 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 beautiful. But in the meantime, check us out on iTunes and Stitcher if you have time. Right right uh rate right right, rate. We're all messed up. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Yeah,
0: let us and let us know what we're doing wrong. And we'll be back in two weeks before you know it with another brand new episode, which we think is gonna be a pleasant surprise for a lot of people. And uh, if you are missing listening to us, you can always check that huge back catalog out where I think we're 160 something episodes deep by right now. So there's a big wheelhouse for people who are newcomers to the show that sometimes we do have people like, why don't you do Back to the Future? And we're like, we've done it three years <laughs> ago. So, you know, maybe go check out on iTunes or wherever you're getting our podcast, the back catalog, because maybe you'll be like, holy crap, I didn't know they did Terminator or I didn't know they did... Um, uh, Beyond the green door, or (laughs) (laughs) they
1: did. um, Uh, You know, some some. We didn't do beyond the green door. Some suppliers might, uh, wherever you're getting, might not go back that far. But we have episodes that go back. Yeah, you can always go to our website. We have them there. Our website. iTunes has them there. right? I think iTunes has all of our
0: episodes. Yeah, uh, you can hear us get into Debbie does Dallas. Uh, We.
1: tell the spoiler alert yeah, people never don't realize that, that this Debbie sh- never got to dallas you see <laughs> people don't realize that it started off as a, <laughs> as <laughs> as a, as a deep dive <laughs> into a into hardcore
0: porn uh you know <laughs> we did beyond the green door we did um deep throat we did debbie does dallas we did platinum paradise we did taboo one through four <laughs> we did uh jesus well you name it we devil were and miss devil uh, and mrs jones we were doing uh, all kinds of uh, you say deep throat. We, I did say deep throat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were doing Jeremy, uh, Ron Jeremy retrospectives. We were doing Shannon Mitchell retrospectives. We were doing uh, Kay Parker retrospectives. Uh, a lot of those people show up in Maniac, Joe Spinell, which we did as well on this show. So um, we're kidding. We didn't do any pornos. But hey, if you're interested in hearing us cover an adult movie of that era, <laughs> you know, hey, back well, then they I were sleepover. they played at con, you know. They were at the. Uh, they were. They were avant-garde movies. We're getting too much in the weeds. Uh, so, till next time, later.